What's up everybody, this is Elliot Terrell and you're listening to Magical Thinking. Our guest for this episode is Jim Krenz. Paul Wilson introduced us at the Magic Apple here in Los Angeles a few weeks ago and we immediately hit it off. Jim is a performer and creator who got started in Chicago at Magic Inc. under Jay Marshall. He's traveled the world and will soon be lecturing in the UK. And if you get a chance to see him, I highly recommend it. He's got some really great magic. In the episode, you'll hear us discuss a wealth of topics, including getting started in Chicago, pitching magic behind the counter, the importance of magic clubs, ethics in magic, creativity, how to fight burnout, and much, much more. Jim is a lovely guy, and I had such a great time sitting down and getting to know him. I'm sure you'll love what he has to say as much as I did. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram and Facebook by searching Magical Thinking Podcast and Art of Magic. Join our newsletter at artofmagic.com. And if you want to learn magic or become a better magician, check out the Ambassador Program on Art of Magic. You'll get exclusive access to material that's never been released or is long out of print, and you'll also be able to message our team of experts directly. If you ever need some guidance or inspiration, we'll be there to help. The member-exclusive video I'm putting up tomorrow is a roundtable discussion regarding magic on television featuring Cyril Takayama, Rico De La Vega, Danny Garcia, David Blaine, Doug McKenzie, and moderated by Tim Trono. It's really cool. You should definitely check it out. If you love magical thinking and want to show your support, head over to patreon.com slash magical thinking. Patreon helps me get better equipment for the show, as well as enables me to share the podcast with a wider audience. In return, you'll get access to behind-the-scenes content, tips on style and fashion, and you can spend some one-on-one time with me. Again, that's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash magical thinking. Anyway, get into the episode and let me know what you think by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com. This is Jim Krenz, such a delight. I know you're going to love it. Enjoy. And, and that's why Gardner never spoke about the photos, and that would have exposed Erdnays for once and all. Well, <laughs> I mean, I wish, I wish uh, somebody had kept him around at least. Well, sometimes things are better left as a mystery. I guess. Oh well, we'll put it on the we'll put it on the Patreon. <laughs> so, sounds good. The super high level Patreon that no one knows about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Only Kalush gets in, and he won't pay. Mm-mm. Yeah. No, it's his own. He's running his own Patreon. He's the only patron. <laughs> Ricky manages it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I mean, really, where do you want to start? Because you're you're the maybe the only person other than Homer Leewag that has like had any sort of input into what we talked about beforehand. Really? Yeah. Go Homer. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> and cause like talking to you, I very much get this. When you said you went to a productivity convention, I was like, yeah, okay. That makes sense. <laughs> Jim's on top of it. So what do you, what do you want to get out of this? What do I want to get? Well, what do yeah. I want to get out of this? Um, that's a good question. I have no idea what I want to get out of this. I wanted to come here and talk. Yeah. Um, when Paul mentioned it, um, it said, yeah, this is something to do. <laughs> um, but I didn't also, I, I did not sit down and make a goal mm-hmm. um, like a productivity person would, because I think maybe that was me trying to break out of trying to be a control oh, freak <laughs> and say, oh, we must discuss the meaning of life. Sure. 42. Which we can do. <laughs> 43. Is it 43? No, it's 42. <laughs> the new math. Sometimes. I know, new math. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, uh, core, core curriculum. But, but what is the damn question? <laughs> um, 
Well, I, I, that's one of the reasons why I came up with questions, because if I don't have some sort of focus, mm-hmm. I will go off in 10 million directions. And sure. if you let me, I'll, we could end up discussing old Doctor Who episodes, which for the small percentage <laughs> that might be interested. <laughs> I don't know. Magicians listen to the show, so probably a larger percentage. Than maybe, maybe. Yeah. Um, but I, that's sort of why I, I wanted some questions. You just wanted an idea of what, pick the, what it was going to feel like, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, Paul, I, I asked Paul because we just met once briefly at yep. the Magic Apple, and yep. uh, Paul Wilson introduced us. And so I texted him. I was like, hey, I'm going to talk with Jim. Is there anything that you want me to ask him? And he said, what about touring with Cornelius? What about touring with Cornelius? Yeah. Well, um, I, I used to see John Cornelius perform at conventions, mm-hmm. and he always fooled me. He had this very congenial old boy Texas feel to his performance and yet he always came up with clever ideas that you wouldn't think an old good old boy would think of um, so he impressed me a lot and um, I eventually saw him uh, at a convention might have been the New York Magic Symposium but this now we're digging back in decades worth of memories so I, I may be mis- misremembering that but he had uh, taken out this pen and did a basic penetration through a coin uh-huh. And at the time, I'd worked at Magic Incorporated, and I sort of had a minor relationship with him because I'd call him up and order things from him. So, like, send us Fism Flashes or whatever, Fickle Nickel. And um, I looked at the pen and said, I can sell a million of those. This is a great idea. I, I saw a direct relationship with John Kennedy's Cigarette Through Any Coin, which had come out many months before, but the, the structure of the t- method was the same. But the pen is... It fits the bill for people who don't want to carry around a cigarette or use a cigarette in performance. And even decades ago, there was a minor issue with cigarettes. Um, so I said to John, um, I want these for, you know, to, to sell at the magic shop. And he said, well, I don't even have any of these made yet. This is literally, I'm just taking the convention and show to a few people and, you know, skip feedback. So I said, as soon as you have any, send them. And so he sent me the first batch, and I got them in the shop, and I started playing with it, and came up with a couple of ideas. Um, are we? We're not really talking secrets on this. No matter. Okay. So I came up with things that changed the effect from a magical-looking penetration to a torn and restored bill effect, because originally this was just supposed to look like a pen was going through something, mm-hmm. and I did something that made it where I was putting a hole through a bill with a pen, and when I took the pen out, the hole healed up, mm-hmm. and. From a magician's perspective, this puts all of the focus on what you're giving to the audience at the end, yeah. which is what you want. Mm-hmm. And so um, I came up with these ideas, and one day into the shop walks Michael Weber, uh, as is one of the benefits of working in a magic shop. You get to meet all sorts of people. And Weber's there, we're talking, and I tell him the ideas. Um, and the next thing I know, a couple of days later, a couple of weeks later, I don't remember exactly, I get a phone call from John Cornelius. Saying, hey, I've heard you come up with some ideas with the pen. Um, would you like to come to a convention, demonstrate? Because he knew I demonstrated. Would you come to the convention, demonstrate here, pay me a, you know, some money, and uh, take care of the hotel? And, um, and then I get to go there at the table, maybe sell some of my tricks, and obviously focus on selling his. So at that point, I um, said, well, I'd love to. And then he told me the first convention, which I then unproductively <laughs> forgot about well, or, or procrastinate. Let's, let's use the proper word. I procrastinated. Sure. Because I had enough ideas to fill a book mm-hmm. or booklet, you know. And so three days before the convention, I suddenly realized I don't have anything to sell. 
I better put that booklet together. <laughs> so John had sent me a routine from John Allen, another guy in Texas. Um, there was a couple of other ideas from Mike Maxwell, very clever uh, prediction using a newspaper that no one thinks of with a pen. Um, Rocco had some ideas. There, there were a whole bunch of ideas. Um, so I basically sat down at my computer with, a, I think, version one of Quark Express and um, basically wrote, edited, did photos, did the layout in Quark Express, got uh, proofread it myself for the, through the three days. No sleep. Mm-hmm. It was literally three days of solid work. Um, printed them out on my computer, did a fold and did a saddle staple myself. And took a hundred copies with me to the convention with no sleep of after three days. Yeah. And I get there, and the first thing I say to John is, I need to take a nap. And he's the boots opening. <laughs> and so it was a struggle. Yeah. And um so that was our first experience. A lot easier after that. Um John is a great guy, comes up with a lot of stuff, but he doesn't have the one skill that's necessary to work behind a magic booth, and that is putting glue on your feet so that they stick to the ground and you don't walk away. Mm-hmm. He likes to talk to people. He likes to socialize. And sometimes you walk past the Cornelius booth and you can't buy anything. So um, I, I, on the other hand, know the technique of glue. Mm-hmm. So I stick my feet to there and I just demo and demo and demo. And that's the secret to sales. You, Every single customer you treat well, you show them the benefits of the product. You show them why it's so cool mm-hmm. and you take their money and yeah. say thank you. And so that's sort of what happened with me and Cornelius is that he he found me using my skill set well because um, I worked at Magic Incorporated for 15 years. So it's a small bit of practice in, in terms of selling tricks. Yeah. Um, and John, you know, creates create some good effects. And then for a while, he's not produced a lot of things. He's recently told me about a new effect, which is potentially going to come out. So that's good. I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. Um, and I need to follow up with him and talk to him about that. Um, but that's sort of what it is, is, you know, we go to conventions and work the booth. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's cool. <laughs> what, how did you, let's take it back to Chicago. Cause I really don't know much about you. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, tell me about getting started at Magic Inc or, or, you know, any, any of the sort of coming of age things that happened in Chicago. Hmm. Okay. Well, We'll get into the interesting stuff later. <laughs> Just kidding. Fair enough. I, I wouldn't be interested in this stuff because I've heard it before. Yeah. I saw it firsthand, so this is all old <laughs> stuff to me. I was, I'm waiting for the spoiler alert, and I knew the spoiler to 30 years ago. That's right. Um, well, let's see. I, I was going. I, I a very huge fan of Magic at an early age, mm-hmm. and Magic Incorporated started because I was attending a Magic Club that met in their little theater in the back room. Okay, and. Probably it was the Wizards Club, because the other club that met there was the Master Mystic Ring, but this I'm pretty sure this happened at the, the Wizard Club. So I'm sitting at the back of the Wizard Club meeting, and Jay walks up, Jay Marshall, and says, uh, would you like to work at the shop? And I said, uh, yeah. Okay, come in tomorrow. And that's how I started working at Magic Incorporated. <laughs> I have a feeling he saw me coming to the meetings over time and saw me express a lot of interest mm-hmm. and... But that was, I didn't know Jay that well, and that was how it started. Yeah. Probably one of the other members of the club, whose name was Chuck Stanfield, who was an amazing magician in his time, um, probably told Jay about me, and that's, I'm guessing, what happened, but no one, I never had that conversation. So, sure. I don't what know. was your relationship with Stanfield? He just had seen you kind of come up, or? Well, uh, 
Magic Club addicts, mm-hmm. fellow addict, I guess. Um, Ch- Chuck was the type of guy who would see someone struggling with a trick mm-hmm. and from the bottom of his heart help that person uh, with no expectation of being paid, no expectation of any compensation whatsoever, uh, just out of pure kindness and generosity. Um, and I was, I don't know, maybe I picked that up from Chuck or I'm of the same nature. So we would go to a magic club and we'd see someone flub a thing and we would as politely as possible when they weren't a lot of other people around, tell them, Hey, you flashed here. You might want to try addressing that. Yeah. And so that's how I got to know Chuck and Chuck was just a great guy. Um, came up with some of his own tricks. He had a very good eye for good magic. Mm -hmm. Um, good performer. Mm-hmm. Good timing, good rhythm, um, funny. Uh, never a, a never a person that earned his living from magic, but loved the loved the art, or loved at least loved what he did with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so Chuck was a great guy and was the first person that I knew uh, that had contracted uh, AIDS at the time, which mm-hmm. back then was like saying to someone, "This is the end of the world." Yeah. Um, he was one of the few magicians I knew that just survived that type of thing with class. Mm. Most people would dig a hole and he would still come to magic club meetings. He would still help people. He would still get up and perform and do jokes, get to still do a lecture occasionally. And then over time, you just saw him waste away. Mm-hmm. And um, that was kind of rough because this is a guy, you, you know, you grew up in a magic club with and you just see what a disease does to him. Uh, good to see we're taking this light-hearted, <laughs> jovial discussions. Um, so that's, Chuck was a great, great uh, anchor in Chicago. Um, Bruce Bernstein was another guy. And, and Chuck also worked at Magic Incorporated. So that's why I'm drawing the reference that Jay may have, you know, maybe Jay asked Chuck, do you know anyone who's up and coming that would be good for the shop? Mm-hmm. I'm guessing that that's how I got referred. But again, never confirmed. Um, so Chuck worked at the shop. Um, the other person who worked at the shop was Bruce Bernstein, mm-hmm. mentalist. Very sharp, um, very good with the history of mentalism, came up with some very good techniques. And he and I were the main demonstrators in the, this front of the store. Chuck and Tim Felix, who now owns Midwest Magic, worked on Saturdays. Um, over time, well, okay, so going back to Magic Incorporated, um, I started off as demonstrating just on, um, was it Mondays and Thursdays? And then over time, I took over things that Francis Marshall no longer did. Um, so Francis used to write everything. She would write the catalog blurb. She would write newsletters to tops. She would, uh, compose as she wrote. Um, even in her eighties, even late eighties, I would say she was the fastest typist I ever saw. Wow. And she typed as she composed in her mind. So, you know, she would say, Hey, what's the happening right now this week in magic? Um, Oh, Doug Henning's got a TV special next month. And all of a sudden there's a paragraph. Wow. You know, that she composed, and she used a composer, uh, because what she sent in, I think Tom's just reproduced. I don't think they retyped it. Um, and so she just write a whole newsletter in 10 minutes and then fold it up and put it in an envelope. It gets mailed. So as she got older and older and older, um, things happened. The composer broke and they couldn't get replacement parts for the composer anymore. And so, um, Harry Anderson had, in, uh, at the time who had been doing some promotions for Apple, convinced Jay that uh, Apple computers were the way to go and ended up getting a Macintosh 2, um, which Francis could not figure out. 
um, even with you know page maker uh, was a page maker back then it might have been page maker but in my case um, she couldn't figure out how to do the type and and her fingers didn't fit the keys mm-hmm. you know that was the thing she was a touch typist and so the, even moving a micron over but these were a completely different keyboard yeah. she just she gave up yeah. So I ended up taking over a lot of the writing of the catalog and stuff like that, doing typesetting of instructions, rewriting instructions, mm-hmm. layout, and so on. Um, at one point, she stopped booking lectures. So I ended up booking all the lectures for Magic Incorporated. So I was the person for probably 10 years of the 15 that I was there that I just handled all the lecturing. And I would also be the guy going back and set up all the chairs and I'd be the one printing out the tickets and be the one collecting the money and you know being the one introducing because... At that point, no one else wanted to do it. Yeah. So that was a, a great way to meet magicians because I got to not only watch the lectures, but actually talk to, you know, the lecturers, you know, post and, you know, uh, pre and post uh, the lecture, mm-hmm. which is nice. Um, you get to meet people on a different level that way. Yeah. Um, so You're that, a different status, essentially. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then it, 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 Magic Incorporated never really went to a lot of conventions itself, so I ended up going to, on my own. Um, went to uh, Factors because I heard it was such a great thing, and I talked. I happen to know a couple of people that you know, having been the guest of honor, they were able to get me an invite very easily, um, and had a blast. Um, trying to think what else you don't know about me. <laughs> I think that covers everything. Okay, yeah, we're done. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, it was nice to have you. <laughs> Pleasure. Um, Talk to me about having uh, such an important mentor at a young age, because I've been recently thinking a lot about... Which mentor? uh, Chuck. Okay. Because I've been recently thinking about how so many people, so many people get a magic kit or they see a magic trick when they're young, and two things happen. Either they love it and are sucked into it and it just becomes a part of them, or they go, okay, and they move on. Hmm. What's the deal? Why does that happen? I don't understand. Well, what is it? What is it about us? The, it's an excellent question. I don't know that there's an answer. Okay. Um, the first memory that I have of magic, my my father was an over the road truck driver, and at one point he wanted to drive us across the country to California. And somewhere along the way, he was stopped at a truck stop, something like a Stuckey's. I don't even know if they exist anymore, but Never heard of yeah. <laughs> it was like, you'd see these every 20 miles on the road or whatever. Okay, it's sure. like McDonald's in okay. a sense, except for specific for people who drove on highways. Um, uh, and I saw this rack of weird looking things, really weird looking things inside of cardboard things with, you know, held in plastic or cellophane or whatever. And uh, saw this little red vase from a company called Adams. Mm-hmm. And it caught my eye. I don't know why. And I picked it up and looked at it and uh, make a ball vanish and reappear at your command. And that caught me. And it was like 75 cents, which who had 75 cents? So I go over to my dad and I tug on his pants and want him to buy this and at first he refused and then i you know said nah put that back you know and so he we were in there for a little while eventually I go back over and pick it up because either persistence is a gift for me or it's a curse i'm not sure which and i went back and bu- bugged him again and i bugged him until he bought it yeah and that bowl and vase was the first thing that really got to me um and i really loved that bowl and vase because even when i broke it and the stem of the vase i got my dad to fix it you know, he had to go in and drill a little hole and put a, a little piece of metal in to make it stabilize because, you know, as I did it, 
it was a lot more solid. So that was that stuck. And they seemed to like notice that I liked it or loved it or couldn't stop playing with it. So the next holiday, probably Christmas, um, I ended up getting a Marshall Burdeen TV magic set. I have one of those. <laughs> and that was a delight. Yeah. Um, so that was the next big thing that hooked me and having a, a variety of things in the box was great. Um, the next thing I remember was going through a supermarket and looking at the mag- magazine stand and seeing a magic magazine, mm-hmm. not a Stan Allen magic magazine, a magic magazine. And I remember Randy was on the cover, uh, in a straight jacket and that's probably what caught my eyes. Like, what the hell is that? <laughs> and picked it up and looked at it. This is a map. This is like the stuff in the magic set. And so I I got that magazine and the very back page was an advertisement for a mail order course in magic. And it was, you know, listed that you could learn all sorts of magic, you know, like card tricks and coin tricks. I didn't know coin tricks and rope tricks, rope tricks, you know, other things, stage magic. You can learn all these things that were in this book or this course. Um, and you had to pay for it through the mail. So it wasn't like I could go to a bookstore and buy it. And there was a special deluxe edition that if you spent like an extra few bucks, I don't remember how much it was at the time, that you could get the soft, this, the cushiony cover with your name gold stamped at the bottom. So I ordered the Mark Wilson Course in Magic with my name stamped in gold at the bottom. And that was the first huge thing. Um, if I was going to say anything was an absolute mentor, Mark Wilson mm-hmm. through that course. Mm-hmm. Um, for it's, And I'll still, even to this day, recommend that as one of the best introductions and carrying you further than to introduction into magic because it was the first book that ever broke down text by the uh, illustration. It used to be that illustrations could be anywhere on the page or not keyed laid out in the way that made it easy. Whereas his book, you saw, read the text and you knew immediately next to it was the part, pertinent illustration. Mm-hmm. And there was tons of illustrations in the book, which way back in the day, there were books that were published with very few illustra- illustrations. And for a kid learning who maybe is visually oriented, Oh, worth its weight in gold. So that was a, an amazing moment. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, probably the next big thing was going to magic conventions and where I met my first real mentor. Now, Chuck, I'll say, was more of a friend, uh, a good buddy, versus my first genuine mentor was Jim Ryan, James Patrick Ryan, darling of the Geritol set. Now, if you've never seen Jim Ryan, and I don't know that there's any good video film uh, it'd have to be film of him at the time. Imagine if you if you could, Matt Shulian crossed with Johnny Paul. Okay. I, and I don't know if that gives you a picture. If you, it's hard to explain Jim Ryan. Jim, <laughs> Jim Ryan was this rotund Irishman who had this sense of humor that could make you belly laugh uh-huh. at his command. Yeah. Just like, boom, flawless timing. Everything that he did, he stamped as his own. He did. You know, he learned a lot of tricks from LePaul, a lot of tricks from Brother John Hammond, sure, um, and a lot of stuff from Johnny Paul. And but none of it. If you looked at it, you could none of it. You could say, "Oh yeah, that's just Johnny Paul's routine," or "That's just Brother John Hammond." No, Jim put his own personality and ideas into. It. Yeah, and he had the ability to come up with a punchline that was <laughs> hilarious to punctuate the very end of the routine, yeah. every single routine. Um, bar magician, um, very, very funny, and was also, the fir- I'll say, the first magician that absolutely flabbergasted me. I mean, just, I saw him perform, and I didn't know how he did the trick. And, again, either a blessing or a curse, 
I'm very good at picking up when someone does their thing, their secret move, their whatever. Um, I can sense a tell or sense there's something amiss. Uh, and that's with the vast majority of performers out there. I can name maybe on two hands performers that completely get me. Jim was the first that completely got me. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't sense when he pumped. I just had no idea that there was a card in his hand. Mm-hmm. Um, I could not tell when he did a double lift. Sure. He turned over a single card. This is not a guy that you thought was an eloquent technician. This was a, a rough Irish barman <laughs> that maybe had been working a 10-hour day at the dock. Yeah. And he'd come over and he'd do this. And he'd turn over a single card. There's yeah. no there's no question. Mm-hmm. There, there's no possible ability it was anything but a single card. First magician that ever fooled me with the cups and balls. Um and the thing that really, really got me, the, the, the bulk of the routine is brilliant. But at the end, he picks up the three cups and says, where would you like me to put the ball? And it's it's as clean as you could be. You know, none of this type of stuff. Mm-hmm. So he picks up three cups at the end and says, um, where would you like the ball to go? And the person, you know, people always hesitate. And he says, ah, never mind. This will kill you. And he tipped all three cups back at the same time, all three final loads and you had no sense, no sense that the the final loads were there mm-hmm. or where the hell they came from. Yeah. So I met Jim at a, a local magic convention that was maybe 100 people attending, um, put on by one of the local SAM assemblies. Um, there you go. Okay, I just found one of the things that would be good for a point to make in this podcast. Join a magic club. It will help you in many ways. It will help you learn. Speaking of mentors, it will help you find mentors, or you can mentor other people, which is a great way to to give back. You will get to see everything. Horrible magic, which is a learning experience. (laughs) Mediocre magic, which is a learning experience. And you're also, on occasion, see great or phenomenal magic which is a great learning experience. So join a magic club. That's If you take nothing else away from the podcast, get out and join a physical magic club. Yes, the online clubs are great, but there's something about being in person with a group of guys talking about what you love mm-hmm. that's you're never going to be able to do on Skype. Sorry. Okay. It's the same way. And like I've tried having sex on Skype. Trust me, it's much better to have sex in person. It's much better to go to a magic club and meet with other magicians in person. Yeah. Okay. So, um, <laughs> all right. So, uh, at that convention, I talked to Jim Ryan and found out about magic clubs. Yeah. And Jim got me to go to, to magic clubs. Um, he was a big proponent of the Wizards, the small club that met in the back of Magic Incorporated, but he also was a member of the SAM and the IBM. So I started off at one, eventually got to the second one. By the end of the year, I was in the third one. And then by the uh, beginning of the next year, I was in the fourth one. There were, at the time, four magic clubs in uh, Chicago. So there was um, SAM uh, number three, um, the Harlan Tarbell ring, which is the IBM ring. And then the Wizards and Mazda Mystic Ring. And I joined all four. And so basically once a week, I was going to a magic club. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a really helpful thing. And Jim not only mentored me, but he also taught me tricks. I had uh, proper lessons with him. We'd sit at the back of the uh, club and talk things. Um, he would give me honest feedback. If he saw me flash, he would tell me in a kind way, which yeah. is important. Um and uh, Jim was a hell of a great person. So the, if, if you can get a mentor, by all means, get a mentor. Um, and you're probably the best way through that would be a magic club. Um, if you can, get a mentor who performs a lot. 
There's a second point for you for the podcast. If you take away a second point, get out and perform for people that you don't know. Mm -hmm. People that you know will be too kind. People that you know will be generous with applause. Perform for laymen who have no idea who the hell you are. um, And you will become much better. And if you continue, I'd say great. Where do you go and perform? Where Where do you have the opportunity to be bad? Wherever you make the opportunity. Okay. Well, I mean, perform anywhere you can. Um, Magic Clubs would be a great start. Yes, people will start to get to know you. And yes, people will be overly kind um, because they've been through the pain of, you know, someone saying something nasty to them uh, in performance. Um, But Magic Clubs would be a great start. Um, If you're of age, a bar, um, particularly a bar that's willing to let you perform. Um, Restaurants, you know, book a job as a restaurant magician. Um, If you choose a place that doesn't pay you, uh, not that I'd recommend this, but if you choose a place that doesn't pay you, they're a lot more flexible with how good you are. And that's where you can cut your teeth, you know, where you can come, you, you can get over the little humps. Um, don't try and get the best job in the world right away because you will fail and it will hurt a lot. Um, but all of that said, we now have the luxury of David Blaine having made street magic semi-legitimate as a performance venue. Um, I would say go to a festival, um, a park, any place where people are gathered for the purpose of entertainment. And assuming that you have the ability to, without any legal repercussions, meaning that you either have a permit or there's just where you live, there are no permits, um, perform in public at, at a park. Um, street magic will teach you the harshest lessons, but will also make you, it will build up the, the hardest armor and give you the best experience to improve. If you can hold a crowd on a street, you know you're good. You're good. If you can't hold a crowd, it tells you what you need to do. It tell, and it tells you when. Because the moment they start walking is the moment you know I failed at either keeping their attention or the trick is not interesting or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever the flaw may be. Um, so street performing is, is a very harsh lesson. Um, for a while, I got a job at the Bristol. Well, it's called King Richard's Renaissance Fair way back when. I think it's called Bristol now. They did, It changes. And there were two great magicians there. One was um, uh, Tremont who was a very good normal magician who had adapted his stuff to Renaissance style. Mm-hmm. Very good timing, not outstanding, but good. He was the type of guy that you'd know would show up on time and would do a good job. Not a great job, mm-hmm. but he was solid. A nice guy. Um, the other guy who makes Tremont pale in comparison, which I don't Hopefully Tremont's not listening. Um, Johnny Fox. Wow. What an experience seeing Johnny Fox perform live day after day. Because when you're working at the fair, you know, fair, you're either working yourself or you're watching other performers. And so I'd go over and watch Johnny perform. Johnny is an amazing magician, um, amazing street performer. And one of the few uh, sword-swallowing acts I've seen that just is hilarious and mystifying and yet not not too vulgar to the point where you might say, oh, isn't he going to throw up? No, you never get that feeling from him. He just performs a really odd technique or really an odd skill mm-hmm. incredibly entertainingly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so seeing Johnny perform was amazing. Um, and he was also one of the few street performers I knew that did not shirk from doing hard stuff. So he did cups and balls and was doing Vernon's routine on the street, mm-hmm. which back in the day, seeing Vernon's routine on the street, this were t- like we're talking 81, 82. No one did Vernon's routine on the street. Um, and he did, uh, the only person I saw that did Cornelius's, uh, coin that falls up the muscle pass. Yeah. Um, and he did it every time and he didn't, you didn't see him do prep, you know, it's like he picked up the silver dollar, um, and he got 
good damn distance on it. Um, so yeah, seeing Johnny uh, was great. Uh, so the answer there would be if there's a Renaissance fair and you like that type of thing, see if you, they hire you. Um, when I first went to the Renaissance Fair, I fell in love with it because it's all this theatrical stuff with all these performers doing all unique things. And I saw that on the back of their program, they, they auditioned performers. So I contacted them the old way, snail mail back in the day. And I knew that I was doing something right at the time because when I went out to do the audition, it was for the, you know, the guy who basically ran the fair. Um, and he said, all right, what do you do? And I said, I do close-up magic. Da, da, da. let's go over to a table and I start performing the routine and I do the cups and balls. And at one point I'm in the middle of the cup and ball routine middle. And he says, okay, you're hired. I said, well, let me finish the trick. It's okay. You're hired. And so I pick up the cups and there's the final loads and the, Oh, you know, you're doing something right. If you can get approval from before you're done, before you're finished. Yeah. Um, there's another point to take home. Um, so anywhere you can find an opportunity to perform, perform. Mm-hmm. Um, anytime that you see people bored where they're waiting in line for something, entertain them. Uh, and, and it shouldn't be that difficult to do. If you love this stuff, you're going to be wanting, you're, you're chomping the bit to perform anyway. Um, unless you've got anxiety issues or fear that's too powerful, uh, get out and perform wherever and anytime you can. Mm-hmm. If you can get a job working at a bar or restaurant, Renaissance fair, Street festival, music festival, um, you should, it shouldn't be problems. Um, find where other performers perform, you know, hook up with other performance crowds. Um, and going to magic clubs will help you because you're, you know, often we'll hear the magic club saying, Hey, there's going to be this event, uh, at the local bank next week and they'd like to have a couple people entertain. Volunteer, do it for free. Um, everyone has to start somewhere and the first, Dozen shows, maybe the first hundred shows, maybe the first thousand have to be free. Yeah, but you're being paid in experience. Yeah. It's worth more. Um, so that's where you perform, anywhere you can. And find someplace new. Come up with a place that no one else is performing, like the Waldorf in New York. And then you have a career that's amazing. Yeah. You know, or where, whatever place. You know. Yeah. Um, find that place where you know, look as you're walking along during the day and say, hmm, there's a, this is no longer the case. But when it first opened up here, there used to be incredibly long lines out the doors of Krispy Kreme. And if I was uh, motivated at the time, I would have walked to the owner of a Krispy Kreme and say, I see you've got this long line and it's not moving that quick. Um, how about I just perform for the people there? And if you want to, you know, Give me some small fee, great. Otherwise, give me permission to hand out my business card to the people in line. I bet you I could have done that. And you have a, a, a dedicated audience that has nothing else to do but watch because they're waiting in line. Mm-hmm. Find that new thing. You know, look at an upcoming technology that's not got everything figured out yet, and their people are waiting for something, and approach them. Uh, so you don't have to perform in restaurants. Don't have to perform in a bar. Those are obvious because people have established that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but look for the new thing. Be the pioneer. Be the leader that forges that new space. Um, you know, at one time there were no magicians performing at theme parks. At one time, yeah. Um, so find that new new venue. You know, there's got to be one. There's got to be hundreds, thousands. You just are over. We, we don't see them. Um, okay. Next next topic. Next question. Well, I'm curious uh, about. I I was a, a busker for a minute. And I it's better that. than zero. It's better than zero minutes. Uh, I I bus for about a year and a half, two years maybe. Good. Um, and 
I just I was just watching this TV show on Netflix. It's a new show that just came out. Uh, it's Nick Kroll, John Mulaney. It's called Big Mouth, and it's about kids going through puberty. And it's hilarious. But one of the characters in the show... I look forward to that one day, going through puberty. Yeah, right? Yeah. It'll be nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the characters in the show is a magician. And basically, the whole point of his character in that show is to shit on magic. Uh, and these are like some of the most popular, well-known, successful comedians working right now have created a show for Netflix. One of the most uh, commercially successful and uh, creatively viable platforms for people to innovate. And they're shitting on magic. And it's front and center. And uh, that makes me uncomfortable. So the reason I brought it up is because... Why does it make you uncomfortable? uh, Well, the reason I brought it up is because when you're trying to find a place to be bad, you're fighting a perception of magicians and of magic that is in the public consciousness. uh, That we're all hack and gross and dumb and stupid and uh, disappointing and jerks. And you obviously have a bad set of friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't have any friends. <laughs> well, that, that, clearly. Well, maybe you're just projecting, and all of those things are you. That's why. That's why I do the podcast. <laughs> this is the only. This is the only time I have with another person in the room. Um, no, no, no. Okay, uh, all, all, but, all, all jokes aside. Yeah. That happens with almost any art form. Um, now, yes, magic might be one of the current, you know, whipping boys, as mm-hmm. it were. Um, but I've seen painters dismissed. I've seen musicians dismissed. I've seen mimes horribly dismissed. Mm-hmm. I mean, good grief! I don't know how anyone could be a mime. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be speechless. Um, okay, I had to. I, that's hard. I have to throw in humor now and then, even bad humor. Um, a mime is a terrible thing to, to waste. Um, everyone becomes a whipping boy because they make themselves targets. Um, a bully is not a bully if he doesn't have a victim. Mm-hmm. So we as magic representatives need to not be victims. Mm-hmm. Instead of complaining about people treating us badly, mm-hmm. dismissing us as an artist or as an art form, mm-hmm. or magic as an art form, we need to stand up and say something. Um, and that means that maybe we need to become better artists or become better representatives of the art form because I've seen and agreed with a lot of the mime jokes, especially in the 80s and part of the 90s when they were very – no one loved a mime. Mm-hmm. And I saw Marcel Marceau mm-hmm. and changed my mind in an instant. Every one of those jokes suddenly became non-existent mm-hmm. or at least I, cat- I, I, cat- I took those jokes and put them into a compartment of – Wow, that's a very clever humor, but it doesn't actually have any substance behind it. In the same way, and I don't know that the culture has ever done this, and this is maybe me making bad assumptions from my mind. Um, You have to compartmentalize Pollock jokes as not actually representing the Polish population. Mm -hmm. The same way that lawyer jokes, of which there were tremendous amounts of lawyer jokes in the the time I I grew up in in that uh, in in Magic Incorporated's time lots of lawyers were magicians and so every week you get new lawyer jokes but they were really really funny and then I found that really good lawyers the jokes are not applicable to Mm -hmm. but there are really 
bad lawyers out there, which maybe the jokes, where the core of the jokes were, were from. Mm-hmm. So that's up to us as a whole, not just a single person, because I don't know that any single person can change the, 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 the mentality of the entire population. But if every magician goes out there and, and puts more effort, more power, more presence, more authenticity, we use whatever word you want to use, puts more art into their magic, mm-hmm. cares more deeply, mm-hmm. spends more time on things, um, it will change the public's opinion of it. Um, don't be a victim. Um, when someone brings stuff like that up, say, well, they're, it's very clear they're making fun of bad magicians. They're not making fun of magic. They're making fun of bad magic. And just like in any art, there's good and bad. Mm-hmm. I've seen atrocious paintings masquerading as art. I've seen bad musicians pretending their music is really great. I've seen bad mimes who think they're actually really good. You know, so there's some maybe some sure. truth to a lot of the jokes that go on and, and stuff like that. But I've also seen really good examples of all of the above. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm sure there's great examples that I haven't seen yet. You know, the world's a very big place. I think the problem is that uh, these these other examples, mm-hmm. apart from mine. Uh, are far more saturated in the public consciousness than magic is. And so, in, in, in this show that I'm talking about, yes, they are parodying what we would consider to be bad magic or hack magic or mm-hmm. what the stereotype of magicians are, but the caricatures that they portray are of recognizable magicians, people who we as magicians would consider to be some of the better people in our group. And so that's the problem, I think, is that not that they're parodying bad magic, is that they don't know that there is good magic. Or that they think that even if your magic is good, you are an asshole that does magic. Right, 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 right. And, and, the, and the real challenge here comes from the fact that these people that do this often are very talented very funny, mm-hmm. very funny writers, very funny you know actors. So they actually portray really good humor wrapped around a bad concept. Mm-hmm. And this would not be the first time that comedians make a great living off of dismissing, dismissing something that's actually valid. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that there's a really good answer. Um, and it also depends on the culture you're in. I think that we maybe get a, a slightly warped per- perception of that from being in Los Angeles, where a lot of the entertainment culture is heavily biased or heavily jaded. Well, but L.A. influences the entertainment culture of the rest of the world. Well, okay, I would be willing to wager that we could walk down any street in Madrid or any street in Spain, Okay, and we will not have this happen. (laughs) Well, okay, Okay. you're right. That's a different animal entirely. Well, let's analyze why that happened. We have many people who are artists who got on TV and presented magic as an art Mm -hmm. without being an asshole, Mm -hmm without being a jerk, mm-hmm. without using de- demeaning humor, mm-hmm. because it wasn't their nature. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't want to dismiss that. There are places for Don Rickles. Sure, of course. Okay? In, in Especially magic. now that he's gone. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> True. Right, continue. Um, but we have people that, in Spain, not just Juan, mm-hmm. um, who put magic on TV in a fashion where people recognize it as true art and that there's quality there and there's skill there and everything, everything that you want in art. Yeah. Um, and they did it to such a degree that people, it, it became ingrained in the culture. 
And I'll give an example of an experience I had in Spain that completely surprised me. So I did a, a standard vanishing handkerchief, you know, so you show your hands, you put the handkerchief in your hands and it disappears in a bar because someone asked me to do a trick in the bar and I wasn't prepared. But of course, that's, you were prepared. I was prepared, <laughs> but not prepared to do a show. Yeah. So what do I have? Oh, I'll go to the old trustworthy handkerchief. So I take the handkerchief and, the, and we were at the corner of the bar. It's a small bar, but, you know, two guys. I take the handkerchief, put it in hand, it vanishes. A la Gazzo, I take the card, produce the handkerchief from the card. And all of a sudden I get applause. Now this trick is not a, an applause trick for me. The way I do it, it's more of a visual eye candy. But it got applause from the other end of the bar. Now, I don't know any bar in America, if I was not like center stage like Tom Mullica or Johnny Paul, but it, it, any bar where I was performing at the corner, the entire rest of the room would not even give a damn about me. They would not be looking at me. They would not be anything. Mm -hmm. The other people at the other end of the bar in Spain saw us, watched politely from a distance, and then at the end applauded at what they saw. <laughs> So not every place in the world yeah. thinks that we're jerks, assholes, etc. How do we change that? Well, maybe it means we need to get better artists on TV. No offense to the current artists on TV. And goodness knows, I don't know that I would ever be able to do as good a job as the current folks that are on TV um, or on the Internet, you know, in, in various forms. On YouTube, I guess that's the new, the new TV. If you're going to put yourself on TV or on YouTube... Wait until the art is inspirational to you. One, okay, here, here's another point to take away. The first time that I knew that I fucking sucked was when I watched myself on a VHS camera. I thought I was God. I did tricks and I fooled people and they laughed because I was funny. And, <laughs> and I'm doing my trick and, oh, I have an opportunity to buy a video camera. That'd be cool. I can make some movies with my friends. I can, I can maybe watch some tricks. Maybe to help me figure out tricks better. So I set the video camera and I, you know, give my greatest performance to the camera. And afterwards, I hit the play button and cry. I was horrible. I flashed left and right, and I flashed in ways that Chuck Stanfield and Jim Ryan didn't tell me, but I saw it. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to perform something on TV or YouTube where you are the producer and the person who hits the publish button, mm -hmm. watch the video before you publish it. <laughs> and I mean, watch it with open eyes. There's this old classic thing. I always used to know magicians that practiced in front of mirrors because they would blink when they did a move. It was yeah. the most obvious tell because you're trying to fool yourself in the mirror. And the easiest way when you're performing in a mirror is to blink. Yeah. You, you can't see this, the move if you close your eyes. Video cameras don't blink. They are brutally honest in a way that almost no teacher is. You will cry the first time you see yourself on video if you are honest, if you're, if you're not going to bullshit yourself. Mm -hmm. um, are we, it's okay if we swear? I yes. Don't, okay. Yeah. Um, well, you never know. With internets, <laughs> there, there's all, everything on the internet. We have an explicit rating. Okay. I didn't, didn't remember to check that. Um, Video cameras will be your most honest teacher. Yeah. So, and and now, and back in the day when I had to spend an obscene amount of money <laughs> to get a video camera, we now have video cameras built into our freaking phones and really amazing vi videos. Film yourself and don't turn away. Don't laugh. Stare unblinkingly at your stuff. Take it. Oh, with no lube. Yeah. 
And at the end, if you can honestly say that you would put that up there for your grandchildren to watch, you're okay. Put it up. If you are ashamed of it in any way, shape, or form, practice the routine a thousand more times. And I'm not exaggerating. Doing the routine ten times is not going to get you good. Doing it a hundred times might get you okay. A thousand times is where you start to approach a level of precision. If you don't know what precision is in a performance, pull up videos of Paul Gertner. The precision in his performances is astonishing. Mm -hmm. That's what you should be aiming for. And I'm not saying maybe Paul Gertner is the moon, and like the classic phrase, shoot for the moon, and if you miss, you still end up amongst the stars. He may be too high of a, 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 a barrier to reach, you know, to get that level of precision in his performance. But if you get close to it, now you're in the range where you can put your stuff on YouTube or on TV. Well, that's the other thing. One of the questions you asked was, when do we know a magician's ready to appear on TV? Well, I think TV tells you. Um, does it? I yes. I think it does. Well, if you're going on a show that you respect, mm-hmm. it tells you. If you're going on a show that you don't respect, that should tell you a much louder voice. Like, for example, if I was ever personally, and mind you, this is probably bringing out personal prejudices of mine, um, but if I was ever booked to appear on the Howard Stern show, mm-hmm. I'd be really worried mm-hmm. because I would be waiting for him to tear me a new one mm-hmm. because that's his style. Yeah. In the same way, and to a lesser degree, I'd be worried if I was ever booked on Letterman mm-hmm. because Letterman is crucifying people left and right, not just magicians, but he will he will tear people up. Yeah. Um, whereas if I got booked on Carson, you know you're good because Johnny knows magic uh, – my, for people who don't know Johnny Carson, because I realize there's a generation gap here. Um, Carson was a great magician himself. Maybe not the world's best, but he he understood things in magic. He understood moments and timing and rhythm. And, um, and Johnny knew magicians. So when someone went on and performed, he appreciated it on a different level than the regular audience. Mm-hmm. So to get booked on Carson's show, you knew you had to go through several layers of approval. Um, you knew you were good enough, and you knew you'd be treated well. Yes. Whereas if you get on America's Got Talent, where there really is no threshold other than getting in a long line and going through whatever paperwork they have to make you jump through, you know, red, red tape, um, you can get onto America's Got Talent, and you could be horrible. Now, or, or mediocre, which is almost as bad. Um, I mean, is it worse to be horrible and reviled, reviled for that, or is it worse to be mediocre and completely and utterly forgotten? I'm not sure. Um, but the message from something like America's Got Talent is if you get put on TV, it means there's something there. Mm-hmm. They, they saw something. Now, the question is, are they doing the, oh, let's look at the, the catastrophe collapse on itself? Or are they saying this guy's got a chance and he needs to grow? Um, America's Got Talent is pretty vicious. On the other hand, it can make people's careers. Are you ready? I think that's a weird system to put yourself into. I think the the system itself will try to tell you if you're ready. And then the other answer is after thinking about it, meditate on it. I don't care what you know, walk into a park and think about it until you're blue in the face. If you're ready, you will be on TV. You will do whatever the hoops, you will jump through whatever red tape, you will whatever it happens, you will get through it. You know you're ready. Now, if you get through it and it's a complete disaster, that's the moment when you have to sit down and say, I just did a disservice to magic. How can I fix it? Or what career should I move into Mm -hmm. and get out of magic? Um, 
I don't know. I, I, if there was a pat answer, everyone would be on TV. Um, maybe there shouldn't be an easy answer. Um, the other thing to do is to look at the, all the variety of magicians that have been on TV. If I was going to be on TV, I'd go back and review all of the Doug Henning specials from way back when, all the Copperfield specials, all the uh, the, the uh, Academy stuff that was put on with the, the collections. Um, I'd look at all the people, you know, TV shows from all over the world, and there's goodness knows there's lots of TV shows that represent magic very well. Um, Luis de Matos in Portugal. Boy, that's a class act. Class act. Um Juan, um, Chanta de Chan and Mahia Patahir were, he was on weekly for how many years? I don't know the exact number. We'd have to look it up, but a weekly two hour show. Now it wasn't all him. He had variety, other acts, variety acts and other magicians and so on. But to put on a two hour show every week for how many years? And then we wonder why there's a consideration of magic being a better art form over there. Mm-hmm. Who here? And no offense to the really good people like David and, and so on. Could David Blaine put on a two-hour special every week? No. Could he hold his breath every week or stand on a pole or do any other of the miraculous things he does all the time? So these become special things, you know, and that's, I think, part of the problem. We don't have a person doing a weekly show like that. Um, or we don't. when we do, we have people that are um, – boy, it's a rough t- discussion um, – and David, if you're listening, <laughs> um, forgive me. Um, and thank you. <laughs> and, and thank you. Thank you. Um, stunts are amazing, but they're not magic. Because if the stunt is done well, you believe the stunt actually was done. Mm. Whereas with magic, you should not have any sense of how it's done. And that's what makes magic magic. It's You, you have that yeah, sense of wonder. I mean, of course. And so to focus entirely on a stunt as the focus of his special turns it into a non-magic special to a degree. Um, For me, it's now become the David Blaine show, which, from a greater perspective, is very wise. David Blaine wants to market David Blaine. David Blaine's not there to promote magic as an art, necessarily. I think that's something that comes along for the ride. But David Blaine should be selling David Blaine. And if David Blaine does stunts and magic, then it should be David Blaine performing stunts and magic as his package. Um... That's not necessarily bringing magic to the you know, respecting respected place of, a, of an art form, because you take take a look at um, when Blaine was just interviewed by Tim Ferriss on his uh, new show uh, Fearless. Um, the big discussion was about the stunts. Mm-hmm. Was not about how did you do this miracle in the person's hand. Yeah. So stunts are. I feel like that's you know. kind of, that's part of the context of having Tim Ferriss do the interview though, is because he's that guy. Granted. Granted. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I think wrapping up all these questions about TV and such, listen to the audience, listen to the comments on YouTube, which will be horrifying. Yep. Um, well, let's see. Let's see if I still have these. Um, you might have to edit out a little bit of time as I look for this. That's okay. Oh, I'll, I'll just talk. <laughs> there you go. I remember, um, when I was, uh, I've been in magic maybe four or five years I was filming stuff um, to put up on YouTube on my little channel and I'd film things 20, 30 times. It would take me four hours to film a, you know, a one and a half minute trick because I'd watch it and I'd go, wow, shit, I flashed on this thing and I wanted to make everything look as effortless as possible for the camera because I knew that it was going to be up there and it was going to be visible to however many people stumbled upon it. Yep. 
um, and I wanted it to be good. And although I would not, I've since taken those videos down and they are embarrassing to me. There were a couple of them that I would go, God damn, I had chops. <laughs> well, you can uh, always get was, those chops back. Oh, of course. And and my chops are still just as good. But the, the thing is... So put up a new video. That, well, I do. And I teach people how to do the things good. now. And I sell the... <laughs> I'm doing that. Good. Uh, but when I, when I go back and watch, I go, oh, I did something correctly. Because I grew up in a place where there were no magicians. There was no magic club. There were no mentors. And... One of the things that I had was the video camera to go, oh, this is what it looks like when someone else that I really admire does online. Yep. How do I make it look like that for myself? What does that feel like? What does the mindset have to be to do something perfectly every time? And it took a bunch of times of doing it imperfectly to be able to do it perfectly once. Uh, and it's the thing that's very yep. important. So YouTube comments. Okay. Gonna say? So, so this is, I'll give a little bit of history. Way back in the day, the height of video technology on computers was CD-ROMs. <laughs> and so this company walked into Magic Incorporated and said, Hey, we've heard, Mr. Marshall, that you know a lot about magic. We'd like to make a magic CD-ROM. This is a brand new technology, and it will have video on your computer off of this CD. Yeah. And Jay says, well, I don't want to do that. Um, here, talk to the kid. And so they talked to me, and it was a fair amount of money. Yeah. And I said to Jay, should I do this? Yeah, do it. Good experience. So I did it. I uh, did very basic tricks that you would teach to someone who had no idea what magic was. Mm -hmm. and But they were uh, something I would improved in some way. So I felt good about putting them out there. And I did three, three, CD, or three CD ROMs. Years later, there's this thing called YouTube. Uh -huh. And apparently, one of the people, at least one of the people, someone bought one of these CD ROMs. <laughs> Took, ripped off the videos, um, I'm sorry, um, copied, du duplicated the videos off of the CD-ROM, probably without any permission from the publisher or the artist in question, and published... Wow, the they were ahead of their time. <laughs> oh, pirate, pirate before pirate times. That's right. Um, someone has to start piracy somewhere, and they published it on YouTube. Yeah. Okay. And years later after that, um, someone had recognized a very young Jim Kranz, and posted a comment on there saying, hey, is that young Jim Krenz? So, of course, one of the worst things that any human being can do, let me, let me reiterate that so maybe it will save some pain, some pain. One of the worst things any human being can do in today's times is to Google your own name and scour through the links that come up. Okay. So I see this link to a YouTube video. I've never published anything on YouTube at that time. Yeah. With the name Jim Kranz. Hmm. So I click on it and wow, that's one of my routines from that CD-ROM thing I did like a decade ago. Maybe even more. And then I started reading through the comments. <laughs> Amazing. I'm so excited. <laughs> you, with the letter U, you, not just you know, spelled out. You sound so weird. <laughs> that is tame. <laughs> That guy is weird, was the response to that. He moves his hands so freaky. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is amazing. His hands are disgusting, but the trick is good. At least there's that. <laughs> OMFG, ha, 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 ha. This guy sucks so much. I won't go into this. Uh, that's what I could bear to copy for posterity. <laughs> 
those are not that bad. <laughs> oh, I, I, like I said, I, this, this is the stuff where I felt I feel emotionally healed enough yeah. from this experience that I'm willing to say that stuff. Yes, yes. I, I trust me. I've been on parts of the internet that most listeners to your podcast would never go on, a, on an insane day. Oh, likewise. <laughs> so, but but seeing that uh, back then, yeah. um, before. Uh, being a, uh, a special uh, <laughs> snowflake <laughs> was a, even a thought. Um, boy, it's traumatizing to see stuff like that. Yeah. Because um, it feels very personal. Oh, yeah. 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 And I think that the, it's, in a sense, I don't blame the people who made the comments because I think they were being honest. Um, I also think the counter argument to the, the, the social, poli- you know, the social justice police, as it were, that go out and say, well, you shouldn't say anything nasty about anyone because it can be traumatic. Well, excuse me. If there's truth to it, okay. When I was a kid, I held my hands in a slightly awkward positions because I thought this was a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and make and for those who don't have video, <laughs> you know, holding his hands up like he's doing the mystical, you know, I'm making you go to sleep type of hypnotism. stereotype of magician hands. Exactly. So I used to do stuff like that. So the comments were not exactly false or or misplaced. Were they hurtful? I don't think intentionally. I think these guys were just being honest because who, who, who of them would have thought that I would ever read that? Mm-hmm. Um, now that said, it taught me some things because it taught me that a, if you're good, because if no one had said anything, I would still stand by those performances as being okay for a very young magician teaching something in a very new technology, doing his best. Sure. But this is the the lesson you learn is that no, not every person in the world is going to love you. Mm-hmm. I don't care who you are, mm-hmm. you know, and you cannot be so bad that every single person in the world hates you. Now think about that. You cannot be so bad that every single person hates There are even some people in the world that love Hitler. As horrible and rotten as a person is, there are some people that think he was right. Mm-hmm. So no matter what, you're always going to have people who love you and some people who hate you. It's never going to be 100% universal. Period. Mm-hmm. I, I could name anyone, and I guarantee you that there's someone out there that hates them. Sure. And vice versa. So that's what that taught me is that you're you're often not going to hear honest opinions from people unless they don't think you're listening. And so that's one of the reasons why TV or YouTube, etc., is useful because you can read those comments and you will get more honest opinions. And you just need to either put on really thick armor. But let the points get through, or you need to take all the wounds and know how to heal from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, coming back to one of the major points in our, our questions, the real answer is you know when you're ready to be on TV. And if you lie to yourself, you might convince yourself to get on TV or on YouTube before you're ready, but then le- l- listen to the people making the comments. Unless someone is the most hateful, vile human being in existence and just hates everything and goes on everything and says everything is bad, there's probably some truth to the stuff if it hurts in any way, shape, or form. Um, So if someone says, well, I could see him stick his finger into the deck of cards at that particular moment, and you go, that means you realized you did it badly. Yeah. Whereas if someone says, well, I saw him do that, and you look at it and say, I don't really see it. Or maybe it's a tiny bit of a flash, but it's not significant. 99% of the people watching would not see it. Then you know that person was had really sharp eyes, maybe as honest, but you don't have to take it to heart. It doesn't mean that you're a bad magician because one person saw a tiny little thing. Yeah. 
Um, so listen to yourself honestly. Ask yourself questions honestly and then listen to the answers honestly. Um, and then pull out the camera, film yourself, watch it over and over again. Yeah. Don't watch it just once. Watch it over and over again. And then after you see what's wrong, practice a lot. Film it again and see if you've improved and do that over and over again until, like, again, I said, if it's a video that you would be happy showing to your grandkids, you're probably at the point where you should release it to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably the safest route. The hardest route is just to put yourself out there really fast, really quickly, get on America's Got Talent, and then see what burst happens. Burst into flames. <laughs> yeah, and burst into flames. Yeah. And hopefully you have a fire extinguisher. And if you don't, hopefully you have a resurrection spell handy. Dungeons and Dragons reference. Um, so I, I don't know how else to explain that. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I think, and this kind of goes back to the thing about the, the TV show, is that mm-hmm. they're not making fun of magic. They're making okay. fun of a lack of self-awareness. And that so could be. people that go on television and they aren't self-aware, which means they either look and act ridiculous in a way that is devoid of artistic intention or uh, they're just not ready, that, that is a lack of self-awareness. And, and the video camera helps with that. Is yeah. it, you know, it's an impartial look. You get to take an impartial look at what it is that you are and you do and you sound like and you look like. Yep. And that's important yep. for any kind of artistic endeavor yep. is understanding yourself in a way that other people understand you. Yep. I agree. Brutal honesty. Yeah. The camera's honest and your interpretation of it is where you could fall apart. Yeah. So stay as honest as you can. That's why I say watch the video without blinking. Yeah. Um, the other thing to do, it's so much easier to give a good performance in the quiet of your home with the camera set up right and the lighting, everything's perfect. Film yourself at live, at live performances if you can. You know, if you have the permission or if you just have someone sitting there with a cell phone recording. Um, and then look at that. And then, because in the moment of performing, we're on a different level and we don't necessarily absorb all the details. Mm-hmm. If a camera is out in the audience filming you and you hear when people laugh or when people go, <gasps> or when people go, wow, what did you do? That's honest. That's more honest than... Versus when, versus, as yeah. opposed to the, the stand, I'm sorry, if I'm on the microphone, I'm standing up, starting to do a standing ovation. Yeah. You can sense when a standing ovation is honest or when it feels like an obligation because the person put a lot of effort in. Mm-hmm. There's a different level of standing ovation. I've seen a lot of performers perform throughout my life and lots of standing ovations, the vast majority of which were justified, but sometimes it's a standing ovation out of obligation. And sometimes it's, you have to get up on your feet and applaud. Mm -hmm. Um, With a camera in the audience, with a good mic, you will hear a lot of that that you won't hear from stage or hear from wherever it is you're performing. Yeah. And listen to that. Watch that. That you will learn a lot from. And even if you can't take video, take audio. Take audio. Yes. Yeah. 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 Good grief. Nowadays, we have things that can record from a watch. Yeah. You should be able to record stuff. But the point of it being, for self-awareness perspective, accept that what you see from this side of the, the brain or this side of the skull is different from what is seen from the outside of the skull. Yeah. And um, that's one of the things where, like like I said, you know, sometimes things look flawless from your angle because that's what you practice them for. Um, and then it used to be the big suggestion was use mirrors 
and then the three-way mirror, which was a great, you know, technology advance, you know, at the time, yeah. you know, to be able to see from different angles. But again, mirrors, you blink and it's all live. So you, you will try to misdirect yourself and you succeed because misdirection or sorry, Tommy, thank you, Tommy Wonder, direction, direction. is a thing. It really works. That's why we, all sorts of things happen in the world. Yeah. Um, Mr. Trump. Okay, I'll, I'll keep the <laughs> political comments away. Um, you know, don't misdirect by talking about golf when there's bigger topics at hand. Yeah. Okay. Um, so don't let the mirror and yourself fool yourself. Um, video, to my mind, is the best. Finding a mentor is great, but finding the mentor who, A, has a good eye, B, is kind yet honest, mm-hmm. And trust you enough that you won't f- fight back with resistance to honesty um, is very challenging. You eliminate all of that with the video camera. The camera just is there instantly tells you what you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can watch it over and over again. Whereas a lot of mentors don't have patience you know? <laughs> um, or are very expensive, justifiably so. You know, One day I hope to be in a position where I can casually pay Bob Fish to look at my performance and give me advice um, or whomever else, you know, is worth that type of money to, to be able to really look at your stuff and say, wow, mm-hmm. this is where you're good. This is where you're not. This is, you know, this is needs more pacing. This, you know, yep. you need a better joke there. This, that's canned humor. I mean, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so uh, if you're at the point where you can afford someone like that, by yeah. all means, a human being is actually, they're also bringing other parts to the equation that technology like a video camera can't uh, input that can inspire you. Yeah. You know? How do you develop taste? Because you have to have your own taste if you're going to find a mentor that's going to lead you in the right way. Expose yourself to everything. Absorb it. Analyze it. Write down what you liked and disliked in a notebook or journal or uh, a blog. Uh, become a magic reviewer. People will send you tricks, and you will get to look at them all the time. Um, review magic shows on TV. Okay, this show is representing magic in a bad light, unjustifiably. How many blog posts have you written about that? Are you asking me currently right now? Uh, zero. Do you like writing? Sometimes. The mood strikes. Or would you like to make a YouTube video with a, a spoken rebuttal, maybe? Not or a podcast episode specifically? No. <laughs> no. Well, 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 but this would be a, a, find the, the key, find the medium that you're comfortable with. Yeah. And speak out. Someone will listen. Mm-hmm. And maybe if it takes off, more people will listen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how you develop taste. Uh, get out there and look at everything. Um, how would I know a good cup of coffee if I didn't have a good cup of coffee? You wouldn't. Okay, so here's here's a bit of trauma um, that occurred to me as an early childhood uh, event. Um, my mother brutally killed coffee for me. She was the Charles Manson of coffee. Uh, I'm, I'm serious. I believe it. She, I don't know what she did, but she chose the wrong coffee, let it get stale, you know, boiled it beyond belief, and it's horrifying. Yeah. And so, uh, but she drank it every day. My dad drank the same coffee every day. 
And so as I was growing up, she, at one point she said, do you want to try some coffee? So sure. Okay. So she gives me a cup of coffee. <laughs> oh, horrible. So she, let's try some you know, milk and sugar. So she pours in some milk and sugar. <laughs> horrible. So she eventually, we got to the point where she took a cup, filled it with milk, put in some sugar and put in a tiny, tiny bit of her coffee. <laughs> horrible. I would not drink coffee for decades thereafter. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I was in Spain after one of the Escorials that I had much the same type of discussion with Vanny Bossy, um, one of the great magicians that I, I miss so dearly. Um, and Vanny says, you should give coffee a chance. I said, I've had coffee. It's horrible. Trust me. It takes a friend to say that mm-hmm. and for you to really trust them. So he takes me to a little bar in Spain, not even in Italy. You know, we were at, at Terrascorial. Because now I'm becoming enough of a coffee snob, I will honestly say the coffee in Italy is slightly better than the coffee in Spain. But the cup of coffee that I had in that bar with Vanny, as he talked about what they did to make the coffee, you know, just, just his presence there, changed my view of coffee. And now I've become a coffee fan or a coffee aficionado. I may not understand all the various, you know, subtleties because I haven't had coffee from everywhere. But I have had coffee in a lot of different countries now. And I've made my own coffee. Um, I found a coffee brewer here that, you know, bakes, uh, brews his, um, uh, what's the term? It makes his own beans. Mm-hmm. You know, roast. Yeah, thank you. Roast, roast his own beans. These things make a difference. The, yeah. you know, the way you approach them. Um, and the only way I would know about this after the experience with my mom's coffee is by trying all sorts of others, you know, and, and accepting that there are possibilities, that there are different varieties of things out there. So how do you develop taste? Try lots of things so you have different tastes in your mouth and say, what did I like about this one? If, if, if you're an analytical type person, make a pros and cons list. Well, this one was too bitter. This one was too tart. This one had no flavor. This one had too much flavor. This one, you know, keep on, come up with your own things. What's important to you? Yeah. Um, and then anytime you have a chance to try something new, try it. So... If it's a type of trick that you wouldn't normally do, give it a chance. If it's a performer that you would never go see normally because you don't like what they do, go see their performance. You're developed taste by exposing yourself to all the different types of performers, tricks, videos, shows, books, music, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how you develop taste. Yeah. Everyone has a personal taste. Not everyone has good taste. Well, I'm sorry. Did you say it didn't? Wasn't the question how do you develop taste, or was it how to develop good taste? <laughs> Fair. Okay. The question was how do you develop taste? Good taste. Uh, well, to a degree, I'd have to say that good taste is subjective um, because I can show something to someone that I think is very high good taste in good taste, and they will say horrible, um, and rightfully so for both people. Um, I, in a sense, that's what makes our world good is that people have different tastes Mm. and to develop good taste is really an internal thing in my mind unless you're going to try to become sort of pundit or leader in an industry where people are following you so for example i've experimented with trying to understand the world of wine Mm -hmm. and i got the luxury of going down to see uh, a live play um, by the guy who wrote um, a book that was then made into a movie on wine. It's all about wine connoisseurs and such. I, how I got the ticket from him, I don't know. It was a Twitter thing. 
I guess social media does have its value. So, I, you know, I, I somehow made a comment to this guy on his Twitter. He responded. He said, oh, by the way, there's a play down in Santa Monica opening tonight. I have an extra ticket. Would you like to come? So I got to go down there. First of all, see the play, which is very nice. Meet him, which is very nice. And then, I'm sorry, the name of the book and the movie, Sideways. Mm. Okay. So afterwards, he says, here, come to the wine tasting by the guy who wrote the book and basically what the movie is on being a connoisseur of wine. And I got to learn the proper way to swirl the glass and to you know do the bouquet and all that stuff. And I'm just a neophyte with this stuff. And I'm sure it was wasted on me. I'm sure that other people would have had a better chance of understanding wine better than I did. But it gave me an appreciation. It gave me a feeling of what good taste for wine was. And the wine that I had there, I've never had that type of wine ever since. Probably because I'm not willing to spend that type of money or I don't know the right stores to go to or the right even the right brands. I will probably never be someone who has a good sense of good taste when it comes to wine, at least right now. Yeah. Um, maybe that's not what drives me. Whereas magic... I expose myself to a lot of magic, and when I see it, I know what worked for me. I know I know what doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. That's where your taste is. That's where your personal taste is. Yeah, yeah. Well, is there if you're speaking from a larger perspective of like a universal taste? Mm-hmm. I don't know that there is such a thing. I'm not saying that there is such a thing as a universal taste okay. either. I'm okay. saying there is such a thing as good taste. So, for example, you could see and expose yourself to a lot of magic. And mm. even though you don't like something, you recognize that it is good for what it is, even though personally it does not move you. But you know someone that you could recommend it to who would be moved by it. Okay. I think that's what good taste is, is when you know and understand enough about a thing okay. that you can recommend it to people who would enjoy it. True. All right. So, for example, I would recommend Dick Osland, but I, I, but I hate it. I hate children's magic. Okay. Dick Oslin is great. I could wholeheartedly recommend Danny Orleans, but I personally don't want to watch him perform for children. He does it extraordinarily well. Mm. Very classy. Doesn't talk down to the kids. Mm. Danny is a a class act. I don't want to watch him do kids magic. I want to see him and his wife do the mentalism act Mm. or mind reading act. Um, David Ginn back in the day, phenomenal with kids you could feel that he loved the kids and loved magic and brought that all together into a phenomenal performance Mm -hmm. i would choose to see a bad magic performer than to see the kids perform Mm -hmm. i have i guess that's where you're saying i have taste in the sense that i understand they're very good but it's not what i want to watch yes Yeah, yeah um so, but that's what I think. I think there is. I think good taste is more objective than people give it credit for. Because no. to me, there are things that are good, and there are things that are bad. And it doesn't matter how many laughs you get from the hack line. You shouldn't be doing that stupid fucking line, you piece of shit. <laughs> that's I how I that. feel about that. I don't know about that. Um... See, I think that to a degree, taste is subjective. Okay. I, I don't think... Personal taste is subjective. I agree. I think, well, okay. Now we're not, <laughs> I think we're now getting into an argument of semantics as opposed to... I'll sit in it all day. <laughs> okay. Um, or I'll, the other perspective I'll approach this from, taste, not just personal, sure, but taste as a, as a concept, as a gestalt, should be subjective. It should be forced into the personal arena because the moment you start saying that something is 
great or good or better than other things for everything for, you know, as a gestalt as a whole in a sense you're enforcing people's preferences around it yes um and i think that's a, a dangerous territory to, to delve into why because it takes away a person's personal feelings about a subject like for example with wine okay if i thought that universally wine was an important part of life because mm-hmm. i've been told that wine helps with the digestion um appropriate use of it um helps with uh your health i guess it helps with circulation, circulation. There, there apparently there's i forgot what the chemical that's in wine is but there's apparently there's a chemical in wine that also is healthy for you in moderation sure um and yet i can't i've tried i can't seem to get there with wine and Again, I've had experiences with really good wine and with people who know what to, to say to me, and it still doesn't resonate. If I take the gestalt feeling of the world, that wine is this really remarkable thing that's good. It, people with good taste drink wine, mm-hmm. and I don't. On some subconscious level, I think that says to me, I don't have good taste. You're less than. Sure. Because I'm not part of the wine club. Sure. Sure. I read the book. I love the man's music. And so I decided to buy some wine from uh, Maynard James Keenan of Tool. He started his own vineyard, a musician who's now turning himself into a, a vintner. So, and he go. you read about this. This is like reading about Vernon doing certain car moves. This guy's into this. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to buy a case, you know, six, uh, six bottles of his wine. And I get it. And I really give it a good try. Mm-hmm. And it's expensive. So this is, this is not an insignificant investment. Mm-hmm. And I ended up giving away three of the six bottles because I... Doesn't do it for you. I tried. Mm-hmm. I, I reached. So now does this mean I don't have taste? When At least when it comes to wine? Hmm. Does that make me feel bad? Does it make me feel like I'm missing out? Mm-hmm. On some level, yeah. Uh, Why? I don't know. It I shouldn't. Know. That's your personal taste. Personal taste and good taste are separate things, and they're both equally important. I feel. Fair enough. Just because you don't like something uh, doesn't mean you're not justified in your opinion. But you also shouldn't like something that is objectively bad. And that's where I think the good taste comes in. When you talk about good taste sort of enforcing beliefs upon someone that's all it is it's education your taste is better by means of education and you need someone with quote-unquote good taste to educate you so if you grew up watching i don't know let's say a bunch of shitty magicians you wouldn't like magic right Mm -hmm. or or you would think that magic is shitty but you love it and then when you're exposed to something like, let's say, David Blaine Live or Delgado's show, Penn or somebody like Penn & Teller or Darren Brown, uh, David Copperfield, you see these people who are doing something interesting, important, remarkable in their own individual aspects. You go, oh, that's not this thing that I thought it was. Your taste has now been elevated. You might not like Penn & Teller's show, but you might love David Blaine's show. You might not like... Delgadio show, but you loved David Copperfield show. Those are uh, personal tastes. Mm-hmm. But if you can recognize that something is good, even though that you is don't objectively like it. better, even though you don't like it, that's what that's what I think 
good taste is. All right. It's, a, it's an interesting taste. definition. Yeah. I don't know that I agree on all levels, but this is also something where I'd have to think about it sure. for a couple of weeks. <laughs> and part- I'm one of those guys who just spews out bullshit and something will stick and then I'll be like, okay, that's what I believe. <laughs> spray and pray. Spray, <laughs> spray and pray is a technique. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Um, it works in all sorts of venues. Yes, it does. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, you know, over on my bar cart over there, I have, you know, 10 bottles of scotch. I am a scotch person. Some things I really don't like, but I understand that the care and attention and love put into them is on a masterful level. So just because I don't like it doesn't mean that it isn't objectively better than $4 swill that you can buy at a gas station. (laughs) Okay, the thing you should do if you are into it that much, um, because I did this Mm -hmm. on an exploration uh, mission. Um, When I was in Dublin, I went to the Jameson factory. Yeah. And they have this amazing tour, which gave me a very different perspective on what goes into making a good scotch. Yeah. And um, at the end, they have a tasting session. There's three glasses, and they I won't mention the brands because – and plus, you should really go and do this. But the point of it is that they, they have you try these without telling you, mm-hmm. and they then – explain why this one has this and this one has this and you have some water to clean your palate between each and it's a whole little process and you can get the feeling of what goes into them mm-hmm. you can taste the certain elements of yeah. the, the ingredients and so on and that taught me an appreciation mm-hmm. of scotch i would not go out and buy a bottle of jameson scotch after this jameson is whiskey it's not scotch i'm sorry whiskey i'm but sorry that's well, fine. <laughs> that shows you how far distance i put myself well i also had you have to keep in mind i've had several bad experiences with people with uh, alcohol abuse issues in their past mm, or, sure. or in their present at the time i knew them my aunt and uncle drank all the time until mm. to the point where they got to a screaming match mm. with each other and um, yeah, I guess I could say this. One of the most amazing and ingenious magicians I knew woke up with a fifth of scotch mm-hmm. um, named Tony Andrusi. Hell of a man. Um, wrote, created, made a new genre, bizarre, well, accentuated a genre of bizarre magic, um, published the New Invocation magazine, published a lot of his own books that were handcrafted to look like magician's grimoire or an antique scroll. Wow. I think that a scroll that's a, a magic book, mm-hmm. you know, he, and he did this all by hand. You know? mm-hmm. um, Tony's a hell of a man. And we went to a horror convention once and I knew that he drank a lot, but we shared a room at the, uh, this horror convention and he woke up mm-hmm. with a fifth of scotch. Mm-hmm. So I have this real ugly opinion on alcohol sure. is that boy, it's a weird thing mm-hmm. and I don't know how to appreciate it. So I'm not going to go down that road sure. you know, because it's it, I've seen what it can do to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and also performing in bars. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there we go. When you choose places to perform in, make sure that you're it's a place you're willing to see the good side and the dark side of. Um, and that's not just for bars. <laughs> sure. Because when you're performing in a place, you can see all the good stuff and the bad stuff. Yeah. Everything in between. So when you perform at a bar you will run the risk that people will imbibe a little bit too much or at least more than is appropriate for an, a public uh, situation. Mm-hmm. And as they say, alcohol brings out the truth. And sometimes people have bad perceptions of the truth, especially after drinking. Mm-hmm. And so you will get to see really ugly things when people drink too much. So if you do become a bar magician, be aware and you have to be as polite and kind as possible until the point where you have to tell them 
you're done, get out. Mm -hmm. And that's rough. Mm -hmm. Uh, so my perception of, you know, having 10 bottles, I can't quite get around that because it brings back memories of aunt and uncle and and Tony. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm not sure that I'm man enough to be able to stand through that stuff. Uh, and given that I've given it tries, Mm -hmm. I don't know that I can sense the differences in quality, the difference in, I don't know. know? Sure. Yeah. It's weird. Um, I don't think it's weird. Yeah. Boy, we're getting really off topic now. We're, we're on whatever topic we're on. But I guess this would bring me back to the point of art. Mm-hmm. Um, anything can be an art. So, yes, absolutely. Making a fine wine is an art. Making a fine scotch or whiskey or bourbon mm-hmm. is an art. Um, the other day for National Cheeseburger Day, I went to a cheeseburger place and the woman behind the, the counter was an artist. Now, what do you think of when I say that? You might think, oh, she's a painter or she's got tattoos or she's a poet. No, she was an artist at doing her job. She made me feel welcome. Mm -hmm. She was lively. Mm -hmm. She answered my questions with pizzazz. It was glorious to experience ordering a freaking cheeseburger from another human being. Yeah. She wasn't doing the job for her minimum way. It's clear she loved what she did. Mm-hmm. That's art to me. Um, imagine if everyone did. Well, here, let me read a quote. I wrote this a while back, and I, as I was thinking about, because you asked questions about what makes art, is magic in art. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I think, honestly, um, anything can mm-hmm. be an art. But let me dig this. Okay, so this is the quote I wrote. For me... Art is when the artist touches the collective heart of the audience. Art makes your heart pulse with passion. I also believe that art is participatory between the creator and the participants. Mm -hmm. There are no spectators in art. Great art draws you in and never lets you go. It inspires you. It moves you. It changes you at your core. Imagine if everyone appreciated their chosen craft as art. What a wonderful world it would be. And I wrote that in a moment when I was trying to analyze art and what the interaction is between an artist and the people who experience the art. Mm -hmm. Because in my mind, the Mona Lisa is not art until someone looks at it. Mm -hmm. In the same way that a magic performance is not a performance of art until people view it and it touches them in some way moves them in some way um, at its best changes you in some way have you ever seen Teller perform Shadows live uh, not Shadows live no. okay have you seen Shadows I have seen Shadows okay. uh, see it live if you can but you, if you've seen it on video you get the gestalt of it I had really no idea when I saw Penn and Teller for the first time who they were mm-hmm. I just knew that they were something to see taste exploration <laughs> Um, so I went down to the little, little tiny theater in New York. Um, this was, I think, when it was only seating 100 people, so it was a very intimate theater. Mm. And I saw them perform live for the first time. And uh, I believe Shadows was the penultimate effect. And it I don't want to ruin it for the people listening if you've not seen it. And do yourself a favor. Don't YouTube it, you know. See Teller live. I, I presume. I don't know if he still does it in the Vegas show. I hope he does. Um, Shadows is a thing. All I'll say is it's with a rose and a vase, and that's it. The rest you experience. 
that was high art in my mind. That touched me on so many levels because it wasn't just the physical magic. It wasn't just the intellectual concepts that I was viewing and, and seeing and absorbing, but it moved me in a way that most art doesn't. Mm-hmm. That's high art. So one of your questions was about high art. And I was trying to think, what in my life have I experienced in magic that's high art? Certainly shadows, mm-hmm. I tell her. Um, one of the other routines that they do, used to do, which I don't know that they still do, um, was called Cuffed to a Creep. I don't, I don't know. It's with pen and teller and a pair of handcuffs. And I don't think I've ever seen it. They may or may not do it anymore. And, and that was also something that probably only played well for a 100-seat theater. Mm. But boy, not as good as Shadows, but still, it moved me to see that. And it really, there was a subtext there that was amazing. And it showed their interactions as artists meeting together to perform in a single show as two really well. I mean, really well. You could not script this better. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, that's high art. The moment I saw Tommy Wonder perform his wild card live for me, this was before it was published, and he's doing... I, if you've never seen Tommy Wonder perform, first of all, let me give you the best advice ever. Buy his videos and watch them. Read the books of Wonder word for word. Delightful. Not just for the magic, which is incredible and groundbreaking in its time, but the theories in those books are a phenomenal thing. Tommy did his wild card, tamed card, and I had no sense. The cards just changed. (laughs) There were no moves. There are no trick cards. There are no anything. He handed me the cards, and they were changed, and there was nothing to see, nothing to sense. This was high art in a different way than Shadows or Cuff to a Creek was. The emotions just bubble up from that experience. You can't explain it. That's I'm sort of at a loss for words. I'm sorry. That's what high art is. You can't really explain what it is. That's high art. Particular performances by Juan, the Paris Act, or the telephone trick... Um, just that's high art to me. Um, it moves me in ways that other things don't. And that I think is real challenge in magic to achieve high art because on a certain level, we all reach a level of art, whether it's good, bad, mediocre, horrifying, terrifying, traumatic, (laughs) you know, all these ranges of, of taste in magic. We have to find the part that works for us. And I don't know that every single performer out there can get to all of those levels, nor should they necessarily, particularly let's hope they stay away from the, the negative levels. But how many times will we see in our life something as meaningful as shadows or see Juan just lay the audience down and bring them back up in this roller coaster of vibrant emotion? How many performers do that? Those are higher. Taken as a whole, Tom Mullica's performance at the tomfoolery, high art. Many moments in it, not high art. But as a whole, as an experience, you watch that entire show from beginning to end and watch his pacing, his manic energy, his gentle humor, his harsh humor, his you know, subtle humor, his outrageous, you know. Mm-hmm. And the tricks are phenomenal. And it's just, just there's this pacing that, that's high art mm-hmm. in a different way than the other examples. Mm-hmm. Um, when you watch yourself on video, your performances, or when you watch the faces, and listen to the hearts of your audiences. See if you can get that. 
there, however it takes you to get there. And I don't know that there's any one answer for the gestalt of magic. You know, one person is going to be this, another person is going to be that, another person is going to be that, another person is going to be that. You know, one person is going to be swearing, performing on the street. Another person is going to be in a theater that's cost, you know, hundreds of dollars for the bad seat. Mm -hmm. Um, And another person is going to be on TV and another person is going to be on YouTube. And they can all reach a level of art. If you aren't moving people with your performances in some way close to that range, or at least you're trying to aim for the target, that's where you need to sit back and say, "What what do I need to fix? What do I need to address? Um, that's where the taste element comes in. And once you've developed taste by seeing lots of other performers, reading lots of books, reading magazines, reading the good uh, thread chains on good forums, um, you know, and so on. After you develop that sense of taste, then you've got to say, well, wait a minute, if my stuff was out there, how would people react to it? Mm-hmm. You know? um, and that's really challenging. You know, and to get to that level of higher where you're moving people that way, now we're getting the questions I really don't even have answer, beginning answers for, much yeah. less spray and pray. <laughs> um, all right, let's pick something a uh, topic where I actually have something more vibrant <laughs> to say. No, I thought I think that was beautiful, and I appreciate your uh, examples of, of artists and art in magic. All right, so this is an interesting question: um, How does one create creativity? And I think for people to become better at what they do. And to reach a higher level of art or high art, you need to be creative. And that's a path and journey that's really rough. Telling someone how to be original. How do you do that? And be good. Mm -hmm. Because I've seen a lot of people out there who are absolutely, utterly original. And it's horrible. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, I just had somebody very specific jump into my mind. Sorry to bring that up, and hopefully your therapist will help you deal with that. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Hopefully you're not thinking of that YouTube video where the guy did the coin trick with the really weird hand gestures. Okay. (laughs) What? Was it a young Jim Krantz? Was that? (laughs) No. Okay. Um, And I think the easiest answer, I sat down and tried to analyze this. Mm -hmm. The easiest answer is you sit down. And do a routine over and over again for yourself until you can't take it anymore. And then you show it to an audience and you perform it for live audiences as many times as you can. And then you sit back down and do it again, the, the whole process. You know, do it for yourself and analyze what's right here, what's wrong there. And you just do it over and over and over again. And if you do something that many times, slowly but surely, no matter how hard you try, it will become you. It will become more you each time you do it. You will say a joke differently. You will use a better intonation. You'll find a better word. You'll find better timing. Oh, I, maybe if I didn't do the double undercut here and I did a pass, and I can do a pass now because earlier in my career I couldn't. Mm-hmm. You know, and over time, your routine let your routines grow. Mm-hmm. Very few people, until they become a master, and there's very few of those, can do something flawlessly every single time, and it can't be improved. So. Do something over and over again until you force it into you, and it will adapt and grow with you. Observe. Stay observe, stay self-aware mm-hmm. as you perform something. Some of my best things came to me in live performances, and I could not have scripted it. I had the honor of Don Allen telling me I could do his Invisible Deck presentation after many people just 
abused it and took it, stole it, whatever you want to call it, theft. But I met with Don. He was a Chicago guy, heart of gold, a little odd, but in good ways. And he, he said, do it. And I started performing at Shulene's restaurant. Okay. And and I did the invisible deck, the penultimate effect, because I closed with the cups and balls. But every single time before that, I did the invisible deck, because as hackneyed as you might want to call that routine, and, and particularly with Don's routine that's been done over and over again, mm-hmm. it's an old thing. But to an audience that's never seen it, it's a new thing. Mm-hmm. And I had this... You know, I was doing basically Don's presentation, but at one point, I don't know why, the audience was very playful, and... I took the, the deck out of the card case because that was part of you know the invisible deck presentation I was doing. As I take the invisible deck out of the card case, and the person sitting to my left was very playful, and I said, "Um, here, hold this," and I handed them the handed them the invisible card case and don't drop it because in this lighting it'd take us forever to find. And then I went on with the routine, and the person over to my right was the one who did the invisible deck shuffling and the cutting and so on. And at one point, when they finished, I just said, "You do that really well." And the person to my left laughed, mm-hmm. honestly. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where it came from, but I turned over and said, don't laugh. You're holding the card case. And every time people would just hold, like you're doing right now, they would hold their hand out as if they're holding the card case. And it was really this re- moment of relish where I'm teaching everyone to, to, be, to have fun. Mm-hmm. And we're all laughing together as opposed to laughing at that person. Mm-hmm. That line consistently there, and I, I was observant because... If I was, thank you, you can put your hand on that. I was worried that you were going to get a cramp. I don't want um, to drop it because in this light it would take a safe. I've got an extra one. Oh, okay. Dan and Dave sell really good card cases. Um, <laughs> um, the You were observant. I was observant and saw that that line that I said off the, cup, off the top of my head got a, a, a solid laugh, arguably a better laugh than most of the rest of the routine. Mm-hmm. And I was self-aware enough that I said, I better remember that. Yeah. And the next table, I did it. Mm-hmm. Probably a little bit more awkwardly because now I was trying to doing the script. It. Yeah, you know, in the in the moment. Yeah. You know? But it worked. And I kept doing it enough that it became the shining moment of my routine, of my version of Don Allen's you know, presentation. That's amazing. Um, so that's one of the ways to help creativity is to be aware in your performances. And you, if you're performing a lot, you won't have the chance to record on camera every single performance. Mm-hmm. So be aw- try to be aware of yourself in actual performance and see when things work mm-hmm. and when things fall flat. Mm-hmm. When they fall flat, find out how to repair that or how to eliminate it or how to smooth it over. When they work well, see how you can accentuate it, make it faster, funnier, better, stronger, whatever. Um, And that comes through lots of performances. So bringing back that point. Um, So how do you uh, create creativity? Do something a lot Mm -hmm. and be observant. The other thing that I found that uh, may be more challenging in today's times with the Internet, turn off everything. Turn off your phone. Close the door. Hopefully they might pick that up. Um, turn off, you know, your notifications on whatever that can interrupt you. What I used to do when I was really young, before I had the internet, it was easier to do. Was I would lay in bed and put on headphones, which is even more isolating, so you don't hear outside noise, and listen to music. Close my eyes, or if I if I couldn't close my eyes, I stare at the ceiling mm-hmm. and think 
daydream, if you will, the type of thing that uh, your parents tell you not to do, or at least as I was a kid, told me not to do. But that's where creativity springs from, is sitting there in the quiet or with music to block out other distractions. Or, or nowadays we have things like uh, white noise or brown noise or uh, binaural beats, things that will help you focus. Yeah. Turn out the outside world and just sit there and think. And it may not be something that's easy to do for five minutes. We'll try it for three hours. Mm-hmm. And if you start thinking about something for three hours and stay focused and keep coming back to it, even however many times you're distracted or pulled away from other daydreams, mm-hmm. you will become creative. And that's how I've created some of my best effects, in my opinion, is sitting down and doing nothing else but thinking. And I think that's important for today's audiences. You get things maybe a little bit too easy. Uh, so if you're a beginning magician, Resist the temptation to put some search term into YouTube. Resist the urge to go to the current hot magic shop and buy the next 16 tricks that you're probably going to put on a shelf mm-hmm. and sit down and think about your own stuff or think, or think about something that you did buy that you do like and think, how can I make it better? Mm-hmm. Don't just buy or why does it work and how can I apply that to another trick? How can I take the, th- the principles and apply them to everything? Mm-hmm. Most often when something's really good, something, at least at the core, can be applied to everything. Yeah. Um, I just sort of had an epiphany uh, like that. Cause, oh, so first, I'm going to write this down because I, I need to give backstory. Uh, okay. When I was young, I was... <laughs> You're still young. Well, <laughs> let, me, let me rephrase. Okay. When I was... In damn kids nowadays, Johnny boy, letting get off my internet. Yeah, get out of my YouTube comments. Uh, when I was in grade school, in middle school, high school, and so on, I was told that I was an analytical child, that I was an, an engineering person, that I was a math whiz, that I was going to be an engineer when I grew up, and that's what I believed. And all of those things were, you know, they were hopeful and, and they reflected what I was apparently very good at in school. And, but what that informed upon me was that I was not a creative person. I was not an artistic person. I was of the, the logical and of the material. Right. And that really, really founded this conflict inside of me when I was in college because I was doing magic and I was working for and with Dan and Dave. And I was like, this is a huge part of my life, but I'm not a creative person. How am I going to make it in this thing? Because I'm not creative. And it, it was awful. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to just decide that I was creative by sort of awakening to it uh, and realizing that creativity is subconscious or automatic and that it's not necessarily a logical pursuit, even though you can encourage it by sitting down with white noise and zoning in and getting into some you, sort of flow. You can, you can help it along the path, but it's going to walk its own pace, as yes, it were. Yes, yes. exactly. Uh, and, and sort of just opening to that. So if you're listening and you go, well, I'm not a creative person, you might be. You just aren't aware that what you're doing is what people call creativity. 
And that, that was the thing for me is I was told I wasn't creative. So all the creative stuff I was doing, I didn't recognize that for being what it was. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but to get back to your point uh, about finding something that works and then applying that principle elsewhere, I was just reading um, one of the Eugene Berger books. I think it was spirit theater. No, <laughs> it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But I was reading a trick in there and you know, he gives this preamble about, you know, beauty of the trick and why it works and he goes into the method and I was reading it and I was like oh you know this is really interesting this is a one phase effect and I was like that's really powerful I started thinking about the really powerful stuff that I do and that my friends do and I go oh a lot of it is one phase yeah it's a preamble it's a it's a dramatic buildup and then there's this tension that you release with the climax and then there is the aftermath of Astonishment, wonder, mystery, yada, yada. I was like, oh, that makes sense. One phase stuff is about the whole and not about boom, boom, boom. There's a, there's a, there's a space for that. Mm-hmm. There are places for yep. that, and that makes sense. But I was thinking about the stuff that really kills in, in my, you know, just kind of casual repertoire. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this stuff is about a magic moment and not about the whole tricks not about moments of astonishment it's about this piece and it having a point and a purpose and so anyway just that that was one of those little epiphanies that i just had recently i was like oh this is a thing where i can take this idea of one phase and this sort of plot structure and apply that to tricks that might be multiple phases Mm -hmm. like a coins across or cups and balls i've been thinking a lot about a one phase cup and ball routine good which is it's called the chop cup. No, it's not. It's not because that's two phases. Fair enough. That's a yeah. ball disappearing and reappearing yep. and then a final load. True. Well, it's a one phase. one. So that's stuff that I've been working on. Just like it's just creative exercises. Yes. Build yourself a house with incredibly small constraints and find a way to live inside it. Yeah. Right. Find a way to be happy inside it. Yes. Uh, and that's. And it's much easier to pay rent on a really tiny house. <laughs> that's true. Um. The other argument I would make is there is with creativity, there's absolutely nothing that's off limits. Absolutely nothing that is off limits. So, for example, with your cup routine, and and mind you, I don't want to throw you down a wrong path. So, actually, maybe I should change this to something else. Um, Let's say I was going to come up with a routine with a magic wand. Mm -hmm. Um, My first thought would be, well, what can I do? I can make the wand vanish and reappear, and all of a sudden I'm going along the flip stick perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm thinking, oh, wait, the wand can go through things. Maybe it's a penetration thing. And, and then I'm not even thinking, what is the wand made of? Mm-hmm. How long is the wand? How thick is the wand? Mm-hmm. Um, does the wand have tricks built into it, or is it just literally a, a stick. solid stick? You know? yeah. um, these are all things you have to experiment with. And then, of course, the other argument is, why does it have to be a wand? What if it's something else? You know, and then of course we're getting into the elaborate types of wands used in the Harry Potter, you know, movies and books. Um, what else can it be? You know, could, maybe it's clear plexiglass. Maybe it's made of glass, and maybe it shatters and I restore it. Uh, you have to sit down and think about all these things. And then what I'd recommend is, as you come up with ideas, you consider of any value whatsoever, which probably is all of them. All of them have some value, yeah. even if they never ever appear in the performance. Um, but write them down. Yeah. You know, in, either in a notebook, a physical notebook, or keep a database or a spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. I don't care how, but just put them tangibly somewhere, because 
sometimes, as we mentioned, creativity cannot be forced too quickly down a particular path. You can guide it, but it's going to take its time and it's going to be diverted certain places because that's sort of what it does, I think. Um, I don't know. I don't have a conversation with that just except when it's around. You know, I, but I think of creativity as a thing. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it needs, for lack of a better analogy, time to percolate. Mm-hmm. You know, it needs time to brew. And if you don't write something down and it takes three years to brew, you may not remember those ideas. Yeah. But if you go back after three years of some routines may take you a lifetime to develop, mm-hmm. um, go back and look at that list every now and then, like maybe once every three months or once every six months, however long, you know, given perspective of how long you're working on your, your art and revisit them and say, Oh wow, that one idea suddenly now, looking at from a different perspective or a different time in your life or after different experiences, suddenly it clicks. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden that art starts fitting into place or the creativity starts blooming, mm-hmm. you know, and now you're down a path that's much more, all of a sudden creativity is dragging you down the path. That's amazing moments to reach. Um, so yeah, it's important when you're working on trying to come up with your own routines or your own ideas, making, making something your own, anything's possible. Mm-hmm. Keep that in mind. Um, there are no no's that have to be no's unless you enforce it. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, another topic or? Well, I was just, uh, I was thinking about your, your taking notes. I, I listened to um, a couple of podcasts and I, I take notes when I'm listening to creative people talk about their process. And I recently had a note in my phone and I was hanging out the other night and listening to a different podcast and I was thinking about I'm going to try I'm going to uh, work the castle next year excellent and so I've been thinking about my what time next act. year I don't know I haven't booked it yet you know specific attainable goals are best yes yeah, specific measurable attainable realistic and timely yes I know. I, the acronym doesn't work for me but <laughs> the, con- the concept of making it specific is important yeah so aim for a quarter i'd say at least you know i'm gonna well, work, i'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm try gonna, and book myself gonna, for the first quarter or the second well, quarter i'm gonna work quarter. it whenever he's got time for me to do it i haven't even submitted yet that's the thing is i don't oh, know well probably well, you probably aren't gonna work it if you don't submit i'm gonna submit before the end of this month okay that's, there we go that's, that's a goal that i have goal. on the podcast Good. john archer challenge excellent i listened to that so yes so i've got the goal um but i was sitting and i was listening to a different podcast and something was said that made me think of a note that i had written previously and i went back and i read the note and I was just in this space of creativity, and I went, I know what my open line for the castle is going to be. Mm-hmm. And I was able to take that note and basically mosaic plagiarize it, <laughs> which is what artists do. They steal. And uh, oh, I, Okay, I, I've got a really good quote that I have to read you. Okay, uh, and I, I was able to find this, this inspiration in these, this magic moment yes. just being open to it and allowing it to percolate. And it's, yeah. you know, once you sort of set that intention, your brain starts to work on it and it's subconscious and, and in the back of your mind. Mm-hmm. And so these collection of happenstances sort of congealed in this moment and I go, oh, this is it. This is going to set the tone for the rest of my my show, the rest of my path on working on what this act is going to be. And then my girlfriend came home and I told her the the idea, the the line, and she mm-hmm. said, oh, that, that perfectly 
captures the thing that you want to close with. Because I told her what I wanted to close with. And she goes, oh, it's you're like calling back to the opening. And I was like, what the fuck? I didn't even realize. <laughs> and then I was like, that is, that, that may, that says to me that my mind is smarter than my brain is. Right. I, that happened and it's too perfect for me to take credit for, but it still happened. I'm not going to say that that was just a coincidence. I mean, that was like a lot of time and effort and energy went into this thing that just clicked all of a sudden. And then somebody else was able to point out this. Creativity often happens in spurts for me, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just have to be ready to accept it whenever it comes and grabbing that at that moment and keeping it, whether it be like me with that line with the invisible deck, you know, with your idea, with anything, be accepting of it. And, and also keep in mind that it may not be perfect in its form. It may, it may be the clay that you need to massage or mold, mm-hmm. but yes, these are the moments we reach for as creators. Um, the other, well, okay, I, I can't find the quote. It's, well, I really, I really, the funny thing is, the, the, the I really, <laughs> hold on, you probably should edit out the space it will take during the time that I need to find this, because I want to read this uh, series of quotes. I think it's just funny. Okay, great. And, and it, it says a lot in my mind. Sure. Um, well, we've been going for How long have we, what time is it? About two hours, if you don't, mm. if you don't consider the part where we, before we sat down yeah. while I was making coffee. Um, so maybe, you know, we start wrapping it up, but this has been great. I've really enjoyed sitting and talking with you. Um, Same here. I'm excited to hear these quotes. If you have listened to the show, which you said that you have, um, maybe not to completion. <laughs> They're well, long. They're long episodes. <laughs> some of them are very, very good. Okay. I'm going to, I'll give you some honest feedback. Please do. Please. On air. On air. Okay. Please. Um, I don't get that right now. So I think it's partially because we don't have any history. So that that's good. Mm-hmm. But I think you approach some of your interviewees with, for lack of a better word, trepidation. Mm-hmm. I think you could have had a much better interview if you were more relaxed mm-hmm. with Max Maven. Mm. Max is a brilliant man who has a lot of stories to tell. Mm-hmm. And it felt like you barely scratched the surface because you were, from my perspective, sure. you were afraid mm-hmm. to, t- to broach certain things. It, it, if you listen to your voice, it sounds like you're testing the waters with a lot. Whereas, if you listen to the interview with Johnny Thompson, I don't know why, because in a sense, Johnny should be a touch more frightening than Max, who Max is a sweetheart, sorry, Max, at his heart. Johnny, though, has got this history that just should bowl you over as an interviewer and you sounded like you were his buddy. You had broke through whatever threshold you needed to be to be a good interviewer with mm-hmm. him. Reach that point with more people. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is probably a growing thing and probably I'm sure the people listening to the podcast are just loving this right now. <laughs> but find that way that you can be everyone's friend for that moment of the interview. Mm-hmm. Even if it's a person you hate, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure I brought up many ugly things for you. It's like I can't appreciate your your uh, what is that? Is that absinthe that you got over there? I know it's one of <laughs> it's those. A, it's absinthe. Yeah, it's one a, of those things. Um, one of those dirty dirty alcohols. <laughs> find a way to re- relate to people on that level, and re- or go back and listen to the Johnny Thompson interview. It feels like you have a real rapport mm-hmm. that's natural, mm-hmm. not forced. Not from an outside perspective, but you're, it's like 
two buddies talking. And I think that's what makes the best podcast, you know, for, and, and not just for magic. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about the, the pen addict podcast. Mm-hmm. You listen to these two guys talk about something they love. Yeah. That's magic on, on audio. Yeah. Find that more often. End of sermon. Okay. Now, sure. now let me dig around for the, the, the quote. <laughs> that's it? That's all the feedback? Well, <laughs> there's technical things. Uh, you should be mic'd yourself. You should have two mics. I'm, look, I'm working on it, man. <laughs> okay. Do you want feedback? No, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not we, being defensive. I'm telling okay, you, I'm okay, with you. Okay, and we are on okay, the same page. Okay, good, I'm with you. Good. Um, yeah, have your own mic. Um, the advice that was given to me by Paul Daniels mm-hmm. with a lavalier mic mm-hmm. is... Um, Mind you, I was wearing a tie at the time, was to pull it up on the inside and put it actually into the knot of the tie so that it's pressed through the cloth next to your vocal cord. And you get a much better resonance with that. Yeah. You know, I can force resonance for my voice if I really speak from the diaphragm. But with that mic pressed that way, it just comes across naturally. Mm -hmm. So experiment with how you do that because your voice should be stronger Mm -hmm. on the cast. Um, This mic is great. Uh... Keep experimenting. I think certain things you do with the podcast are excellent, and other things feel overdone, like the starting, the recording early mm-hmm. each time. Clever idea mm-hmm. the first six times. Mm-hmm. Now it feels less clever. Interesting. For each person, I'm sure it's great, but the listeners are hearing it over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like a, getting to be a canned line. Mm-hmm. In my opinion. Okay. Um, it feels, do you want to know why I like yeah, to do it? Please. Because you capture not, uh, moments that aren't on, on technically on uh, no, that's, tape. I, no, because any of that stuff I will take out in a heartbeat if somebody okay. doesn't want it on there. That's okay. not what it is. This okay. is not a shock jock show. Okay. Uh, and I'm not being offensive. I don't want you to feel that I am. Uh, the reason that I do it is because... I think the listener can tell a lot about somebody if they hear that moment mm-hmm. and how that's going to go and what the feeling. In the they hear the moment when the mask is not on. No, no. They hear the moment when the mask is revealed to have never been a part of it. Interesting. They hear the listener or I'm sorry. They hear the, the guest yeah. realize that they have been recorded the whole time. And how comfortable they are with that and how comfortable they are with me and if that's even a problem or if it's not. Okay. It says a lot about the person that they're listening to because the people listening know me pretty well, I would imagine. Uh, so Hopefully we can improve that. <laughs> I think that uh, I think it's, it's a good moment for the listener. It may be getting old to some people and there are some people that really don't like it and that's fine. I think what comes out of it might be more important than... A moment of displeasure. <laughs> okay, listen. fair enough. And again, I'm not being defensive. I I appreciate. I accept that. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me see if I can still find this because it's it's really good and it has a point behind it. And I do you remember who the quotes are by? Well, <laughs> I don't want to ruin it by talking about it without actually being able to read them. So bear okay. bear with me for a moment. Sure. There we go. Okay. So often. When we write, you try to to write something that's new, that has meaning, that has substance, that will change people's lives. And then you look at some phrases that have become part of our culture, you know, as idioms or axioms, um, or they're said so often that they, you know, you start to wonder, well, who really said that? And one of the phrases that came up was about artists stealing, because this is a touchy subject. Mm -hmm. 
You know, what happens if someone takes something from you? Mm-hmm. What happens if you borrow a, borrow a line from someone else? Mm-hmm. Borrowing, of course, being the forgiving term for stealing someone's you know, uh, intellectual property. Yes. And so this, th- th- I suddenly thought, well, wait a minute, what, where did that quote come from, mm-hmm. you know, about artists stealing? And where's its roots? And so I did some research. Not that I'm great at this, but this is what I found. And the, the quote, as, as far as I can tell, goes back to uh, Stanis, uh, Stavisky, Igor Fridovich Stavisky. Lesser artists borrow, great artists steal. That's a, the earliest I can find that. Then from T.S. Eliot, mm-hmm. immature poets imitate, mature poets steal. From well, we pa- know that T.S. Eliot was a great artist. <laughs> from Pablo Picasso... Bad artists copy, good artists steal. From Steve Jobs, good artists copy, great artists steal. And from Jim Krenz, lesser artists lack, great artists gain. <laughs> Which is where I, it led me to. Yeah. But the, I think this is really interesting. Are those people stealing? Because in essence, those quotes sound the same. Mm-hmm. There are differences if you read, read through them. Sure. Are they unique? Yeah. I think there's creativity in each person that stole something and adapted it mm-hmm. to their terminology, mm-hmm. which changed the meaning ever so slightly. Mm-hmm. If you find yourself in a point where you've taken someone's line or taken someone's routine, don't stop. Mm-hmm. The common thief will stop there. The great artist will adapt, change, mutate, break, restore, resurrect, do whatever it needs to be to get it to the point where it needs to be in the future. And if that's a long journey where t- during some of the time you're doing some of the stuff from the original, accept that. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the time, realize you're building on the shoulders of giants and you just got to make sure you reach the heights that you want to reach. Yeah. Um, one of the things I want to talk about with, with stealing, which really hit me hard early on, this was with Don Allen again. Mm-hmm. I won't mention the man's name. Um, I think he's gone, so it's probably not that bad, but might as well leave it in dust or buried, as it were. But I'll say what he did. So Don Allen had a very popular career set up magic with what is some of its cornerstone effects. Mm-hmm. You know, and was on TV back before people were on TV. It was on the Playboy TV show back in the 60s. You know, it had his own um, morning show for kids. You know, um, performed at trade shows, performed polished performance, hilarious guy. If you get to see Don Allen's tapes or videos, worth every second of watching. There was a guy in Chicago who went to Don Allen's performances to the point where he was able to not only figure out how all the tricks were done, some of which were commercial by then anyway, but but also spent the time to memorize the entire act, word for word, joke for joke, Moment for moment, timing-wise, duplicated Don Allen's act. Then went out and performed it. And then contacted the places that Don Allen performed and contacted the agents that hired Don Allen and said, I will do the same act for less money. That is the bottom of the bottom for me. If you find yourself doing something like that, get out of magic. You're not the right person. Uh, you're not Rich Little doing an imitation of someone else as an art form. You are stealing something from that person. Yeah. You're taking his livelihood, or at least hurting his livelihood. Um, 
if you need to adapt someone else's line, like let's say you see David Blaine do a routine on TV and you're going to use the same phrase that he uses during a revelation of a thought of card, okay, I give you permission to do that for the first 10% of your performances over your life. And by the time you get past that 10%, figure out a different word. And if you get past the 20% and you've got two different words, and now let's say you've done that routine 400 times in front of live audiences. And now that phrase that used to be David Blaine's has now mutated or evolved into something that's more you. Mm -hmm. Let it happen naturally. Everyone has to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. But don't look at something and say, oh, that's a phenomenal line, and then just stick with it for the rest of your life. Yep. It's not fair to you. It's not fair to your audiences and certainly not fair to the performer who, who did come up with it originally. Um, the reason I, uh, one of the things I bring up, which I'll bring back to the invisible deck line, which though I wanted to talk about theft, one of the things that hurt me early on, I was performing in Trillian's restaurant. I did the invisible deck routine and one of the people at the table was a magician. And I get to that point and say the line and it gets a great reaction. And he says, that's very great. I'm going to use that. To my face, yep. in the middle of my performance, he tells me he's going to steal a line that I created because it's just too good. Did you come across the table at him? Either I'm so weak that I chose not to or, could, or couldn't or I have such high ethics that I chose not to. But it hurt yep. that someone would do it. It'd be one thing if he just went off and did it mm -hmm. and I never knew. Okay, if he never steals a show from me or never takes money off my plate and I'm not homeless looking for my next meal, I could care less on yeah. some level. But the fact that he said that he was going to do it in the middle of a performance, have you no respect? And I, I understand that hecklers have got ego issues and that they need to speak out and it's, you know, it's, it, it's part of the equation. But to say something like that to another person. So if you're listening to the podcast and you haven't been brought up in an area where there's good, strong ethics, like you might learn at a magic club or other societies or at a magic convention. Um, step back and say, would you want that done to you? And if it was something that you could not abide having done to you, like someone stealing one of your lines that you come up with, don't do it to someone else. And if you wouldn't say to someone in the middle of performance, something nasty or something uncouth, don't say it to them you know, or someone when they're performing. End of soapbox. I'm sorry. I had to, had to put that in. No, absolutely. I agree. Um, okay. What, what else? Uh, oh, there's... Let me see if there's anything else that I really, really feel urgency in talking sure, about. Sure, please. Because we did have a list. <laughs> the list was suggestions. We didn't have to go through everything. Obviously. True. Interesting. Well, okay. The other thing I'll reiterate about becoming... Uh, getting better taste... Go to a magic convention. Um, you will learn, see, grow more at a magic convention than almost anything else. Um, I've had the pleasure and honor of being at a lot of conventions in my life, um, some of which have changed my life dramatically. I'll, I'll talk, talk about two. When I went to Factors, um, one of the things I did was I got up every year. I got up and tried to do a trick that not only fooled people, but entertained them, mm -hmm. which at Factors was a challenge. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, it was held at the upper room of a bar that didn't have air conditioning in the heat of the summer. So people were sweating. It was uncomfortable. If you were not good, people would walk out because it's just too hot to stay in the room. So every year I tried to come up with something good. I think I did the vast majority of the time. And one year I got up and did this routine where I had a deck of cards that was shuffled. 
And I put it on the table and I ask, uh, uh, Daryl Martinez is sitting there and I say, Daryl, name any number from one to 52. He names a number. Look around. Someone over here, I want to name a card. And a person names a card. It's a random person. I don't even know who it is. I'm going to try. And I count down to the number one by one with the deck on the table. Mm-hmm. So no second deals, no alterations, no taking the deck out of the case. You know. Sure. This is impossible conditions. And it really is. And I get down to the number. And I say, this could be really great or could be really horrible. I'm taking my chances. Name the card, name the number. And it's the card. I'm happy with it. I think I fooled everyone in the room. Mm-hmm. After the show, a guy comes up to me and says, you fooled me. Juan Tamaris. There are moments in your life that you will take to your grave being proud of. Mm-hmm. That was one of those moments for me. And it started a friendship or helped accentuate things to the point where I now know Juan very well. If you have the ch- chance to make an impact in someone's life by fooling them, genuinely rock solid fooling them do it one of the reasons magicians get into magic is because these things are amazing they fool us really well and that brings up this emotion that we don't get how do this is the the thing one of the questions how does magic differentiate from other arts Mm -hmm. virtually no other art that i know of brings up that emotion you get when you just are flabbergasted that's me. I think that's a good word. Mm-hmm. When you are flabbergasted by a really good magic performance, you have no sense. You can't even begin to approach how it was done. And it's rare. You know, I, again, I can name very precise instances in my life when it's happened. But when that moment's happened and you're just have no sense of how it's done, that's a magic feeling that cannot be replicated in any other way. And it feels so amazing. That, to me, is what sets magic as an art apart from any other art form. Um, okay. Are you willing to do a small experiment? Sure. Okay. Because I wanted to try something that I think would be interesting for you and interesting for your listeners. Okay. Sounds good. Um, as you may or may not know, Tim Ferriss has had a huge impact on my life. I did not know that. Okay. Um, I'll give you a tiny bit of background, um, because this is not pertinent to what we're about to do. Mm -hmm. Um, but... Tim has his own podcast, Mm -hmm. and it's delightful. Yes. And he writes delightful books, interviewing people, and he pulls information out of them in ways that is remarkable. He'll sit down with a person and really get to a core of a concept very quickly. So I listened to it, and one one, uh, of his episodes, he announced a contest where you could enter it, and you had the chance of winning one of three prizes. Um, The third prize was uh, 10 tech uh, gadgets. Mm Mm-hmm. The second prize was an hour-long private Q&A with Tim Ferriss. You can ask him anything about his books, life, the people he's interviewed. And the first prize was a trip around the world offered by a travel company, which, of course, was advertising on his podcast. Mm -hmm. And so all you had to do was go to his website, fill in your name and address, uh, email address, and hit submit, which I did. And about six weeks later, I get a message saying, congratulations, you've won. And I thought, wow, the, the Nigerian prince has finally come through for me. <laughs> and it wasn't. It was a, a secretary, his assistant, his four-hour workweek assistant, who um, told me that I had won the contest and I got all three prizes. They were, were going to give prize number three to one person. Whoever won prize two would get prize two and three. And then whoever won the first prize got everything. Mm-hmm. I'm saying, for real? 
So I ended up going around the world mm-hmm. on, with free airfare, compliments of Boots and all. Here's a free plug for the company that sent me around the world and Tim Ferriss. Mm-hmm. And I got to do a private hour-long Q&A. And the guy's incredible just to talk with. It's very dynamic, very genuine, very authentic. He's got a new book coming out. Um, and he in it, he's, taken, he's focusing on interview questions that he closes his podcast with. Mm-hmm. And these are questions that he's refined over how many hundreds of podcasts he's done with people who are really, really amazing human mm-hmm. beings. And he's published the 10 questions because in this forthcoming book, um, he's basically asking those questions of every person and putting their answers. And that's that will be the book. Mm-hmm. Since I have those questions mm-hmm. and I have a human being here who's doing a podcast, I'd like to ask you them. Okay. And you're not prepared. Just I'm so not. <laughs> everyone here understands this is not a, not, not a setup in that sense. Um, and if you have trouble with the questions, we can skip it or do whatever. Some of these are little, well, I won't, none of them are offensive, so you should be fine, but you may not have a pat answer. I'm game. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, and there are 11 of them. Okay. <sighs> what is the book or books you've given most as a gift and why? Uh, the gift. The book that I have recommended more than any other is probably Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People because it is a classic about understanding human nature and relating to people in a way that's dynamic and important for both parties involved. Good. Uh, the, the book that I have given more than any other is probably... Probably... Uh, Ian Fleming's Casino Royale. Hmm. I love, love that novel so much. And uh, I've given it to, I think, four different people. Uh, so I'm not like a big book giver, but I, I just love that book. And that, uh, I think, is just a pheno- just phenomenal piece of writing, especially as like a first publication. Mm-hmm. I just think it's great. Yep. I agree. I had an impact on me. Yeah. What purchase of $100 or less has most positively impacted your life in the past six months or at least in recent memory? In the past six months, um, of, of $100 or less. Mm-hmm. Huh. Well, okay. I will give two answers and neither are from the last six months, but they are both $100 and they both have impacted my life greatly. The first is uh, this pen. I was originally given this pen as a Christmas gift, and I lost it, but it's I bought another one because I love it so much. Uh, it's a Kaweco brass fountain pen. I love brass. I love the aesthetic of it and the texture of it and the smell of it. Mm. Uh, and I like... I've never been much of a, um, a writer or a note-taker, and I feel that having a nice writing instrument is encouraging to me. The other is this... Uh, thermos. Again, I was given this as a gift, but I have bought this in recent, uh, the recent past as a gift for another person. It's $25 on Amazon. It's a Zojirushi. And the reason it has changed my life is because coffee will stay hot in this thing for days. And so when I make coffee in my Chemex, I pour whatever I want to drink into my cup and the rest of it into this guy, and it's ready for me whenever I need it. Um, Good. Yeah. So these sound like lame answers. No. I'm so embarrassed. Okay. I'm not going to judge myself. Yeah. Don't don't judge yourself. First of all, anything that brings you joy cannot be a lame answer. If it brings you joy, authentic joy, 
It is real. Now, some of your listeners might listen to this and say, a pen, a, a, a thermos. Don't ex- th- those are not the audience that needed to hear those answers. Yeah. Let that be. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm with you. Um, and, and there are no wrong or right answers to any of this. This is just, it's, this, in my mind, is what Ferris has analyzed, and he's this experimenter, as you know. Mm-hmm. He's analyzed what brings out interesting qualities in a human being in an interview. Mm-hmm. That's what these are designed for. And since part of the equation of you putting on a podcast is people getting to know your personality, that's one of the reasons why I'm doing this is mm-hmm. to let people know more about you because often you're not exposing a lot of yourself on the podcast. And maybe this is a great thing. And it may be that this is the most unlistened episode ever. <laughs> I, I don't know. Okay. Um, how has a failure or apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have like a failure story that you'd like to relate? Oh, great question. Um, yeah. So I was at dinner. This is one of the first times I was out with Dan and Dave Buck and Ricky Smith and Alejandro Portella and their respective ladies. Dan's girlfriend, Dave's wife, Alejandro's girlfriend at the time, who is now his wife, and uh, Ricky was with me. (laughs) Um, And we were at dinner, and I did a trick with my finger ring, and I fooled Dave real bad. And without thinking, again, I grew up in a place where there were no magicians. I was out, I was visiting out here, I was with these guys. Without hesitation, I went into exactly how I did it. And sitting at a table with half of the people being lay people. And Ricky really kind of jerked, you know, he, he called me on it. He was like, hey, what? Did, you can't do that right now. And that is small because these are people who are around magicians. But to me, that was a huge lesson. Mm-hmm. Uh in in a personal failure of self awareness, and 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 you know using that learning from that and just being aware of preserving mystery and wonder for you know people that aren't afflicted by magic like we are. Yeah. Um, I have lots of embarrassing stories that are are embarrassing to me anyway. But that one that one comes to the top of my mind. And I think it's very useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll stick with that. Good. If you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, metaphorically speaking. My day. <laughs> getting a message out to millions or billions, what would it say and why? <laughs> I told you somebody is dive deep. Well, this, yeah, this is... Uh... A billboard to billions of people. Well, see, this is where I get highly analytical and the marketing degree comes out. And I, you know, I think about what's going to play, what's going to work, what's going to be actionable. What is it that, you know, is going to make a real difference? And so I would like to say that what I put on the billboard would be something like, you know, love your neighbor as yourself or, uh, you know, be kind. We're all in it together. But... That is not terribly useful, I think. You can put that in front of a billion people and let's say optimistically half of them will go, yeah, that's what I do. And the other half go, fuck that guy. He's an idiot, right? 
That's just the nature of the thing, right? Yeah. So what I would rather do is put a billboard in front of somebody's face about something that they probably have not heard of that might interest them that will then change their way of thinking over a period of time. So, obviously, the answer is a billboard for magical thinking. (laughs) Sure. Put the podcast up and change the way people think about magic. Because ultimately, that's the goal of the podcast, is to get the public to listen to magicians talk about magic and that we aren't fucking the worst, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, And so, that's, I mean, yeah, that's what I would do. Right now, that's that's how I feel, is I'd put a billboard up that says, I don't know, the logo and something about the show. Good. And I would I'd focus group that and make sure it was right <laughs> before, you know, committing. But something to that effect. No comment on focus group. So these are questions for you. <laughs> okay, good. Um, what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And it could be investment of money or an investment of time or an investment of energy. One of the best investments I ever made was actually two purchases. And it was a Jubissier made by Gaza and a set of the Gaza cups from Gary Animal. I think maybe the last set he ever made. Those, and that's that's like $1,000. You know, a pouch and a set of cups, that's $1,000. For an uh, act, which could bring you th- that m- exactly. many times more back. In, in the time that I bust, I easily made that money back. I mean, it took me a matter of weeks to make that money back. And the experience that I gained from it was tremendous. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, it's just, it's amazing what you learn on the street performing, you know, 10 shows a day, 15 shows a day. In front of an audience that can walk away. In front of an audience that can walk away. Yeah. Uh, and who doesn't want to pay you? So, yeah, as far as personal investments monetarily, that that's what I would, that's what I put it on, probably. Good. What is the most unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? Um, I guess, I mean... <laughs> you're talking to somebody who fiddles with cards all the time so that's pretty absurd but uh, as far as the listeners are concerned what would they find absurd also that I love I don't know um, or it, it's, it could be an unusual habit yeah so so for example um, I ha- have a penchant of always eating french fries first like if I get a burger and french fries I eat the french fries first I will not touch the hamburger until I finish the French fries. Okay. And it was something I did as a kid, and it's a habit that stuck with me. I don't have a rationale behind it. It's just, it's the way you're supposed to do it. Yeah, sure. So that could be a habit like that or something. Well, so this is a thing that I noticed a long time ago and have just enjoyed secretly, is that I chew to the beat of whatever music is on around me. Um uh, so that's a weird little thing that probably a lot of people don't think about. Mm-hmm. That's something that I do and I'm aware of. Um, Good. Yeah, I think that's that's fine. Also, I mean, I was a marching band. A lot of my walking is very intentional. 
to, which to is a, a weird to a beat habit. or rhythm or to a beat or to a rhythm or I'm very careful about the distance and how equidistant my steps are from one another that kind of thing so that's a weird thing that I do that probably not a lot of people do but I, that I appreciate and like good in the last five years what new belief behavior or habit has most improved your life oh Jesus well. Oh, good to know Jesus, uh, yeah, Jesus has most changed my <laughs> Hallelujah. Oh, that's really funny. I mean, here's the deal. I am, that's a fifth of my life. I'm 24. Okay. Well. So in the last five years, basically everything has changed, you know. Um, Fair point. Well, I, I hate to tell you as you get older, it still changes. Yeah. yeah. The, one, the one constant in life has changed. It's changed. But, but uh, that's sad. And death. So and taxes and taxes and uh, yeah so <sighs> something really I don't there's there's too many to name so I will I'll give a brief list um, my thoughts about uh, personal relationships have changed and developed in ways that I you know didn't expect or thought were possible. Uh, self-confident stuff and thinking about the self and having that as part of your self-awareness has been really uh, life-changing for me. Uh, the way that I think about, cause I was, I was born and raised uh, Southern Baptist and the way that I think about religion and spirituality has changed a lot in the last five years. That's been, I think really helpful and beneficial. And I guess, I guess if I were going to boil, boil all these things down, it would be, uh, practicing empathy and really just trying to to be present and live in the moment in an authentic empathic way mm -hmm. so that's kind of happened over the last five years it's been really beneficial um, as far as practically and materialistically I am much much cleaner and tidier and that has been a conscious effort in the last five years is to develop this you know it's a it, I'm 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 crafting who I want to be, and what I want to be is something very specific in my mind, and I have to do what I have to do to make that a reality. Yep. And that means being reasonably clean and tidy and aesthetically uh, accurate is not the word, but it's like that aesthetically uh, pointed, intentional. I should say probably. Anyway, go ahead. It resonates with you. That's yes. Yeah. Okay. What advice would you give to a smart, driven college student, which I realize that you're the, the age, the, the questions obviously are aimed at someone who's, you know, much older, but uh, what advice would you give to a smart, driven college student about to enter the real world and what advice should they ignore? So instead of, let's say, in the real world, let's say performance of magic or enter the magic world. Oh, well, I'm happy to answer both of those. Uh, to, to someone who's smart and intelligent and reasonably creative, and if they're young, they probably have pretty good chops because they have been able to videotape. They do have the internet. They probably know what pretty good magic at least looks like. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't mean they understand it, but they know what the technique, good technique is supposed to look like. And my advice to those people is... Find other inspiration, you know, like outside of magic, outside, or outside of, of magic, figure out what you like about magic and then look for inspiration elsewhere. Uh, 
uh, and, and start building that personal taste and a sense of what might be considered good taste early. Uh, the stuff that you should ignore is anything that someone you think isn't good says. I don't care. Like, mm-hmm. like if they share an experience they've had, take what you can from that. But if they share your opi- their opinion with you and you don't think anything that they do is good, chuck it aside. Just because they're older, just because they're quote-unquote more experienced, does not mean that they know what you ought to be doing. Don't ever let somebody tell you what's right if you just feel that it's not. Don't take on any of their baggage. Yes. Uh, and if, you know, to a young, smart college student about to enter the workforce, do something, and this goes for people doing magic too, do something that you think is worthwhile. Pursue something that is important to you. Because we're all here for a short amount of time, and... There's so much opportunity. It can be overwhelming. There's a chaos of opportunity, especially to young people that, you know, are good at what they try to do. Because then there's even more opportunity and it can be very frightening. But find what it is that you're passionate about and pursue that because ultimately that's what matters is that you're doing something that fulfills you. Or at least is going to fulfill you. You know, if you, you know, sometimes you have to start at the bottom and eat shit for a while, but keep your head down. Don't be a dick. And, you know, as Jim Gaffigan says, be undeniable. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Just be so good that people can't ignore you. Yep. And that goes for literally anyone doing anything. Agreed. If you want to, if you want to do well, do good. Next. <laughs> <laughs> What are bad recommendations you hear in your profession or area of expertise? So, for example, in magic, let's <laughs> let's say someone has said something bad. What is an example of that? that well, I think you a think lot needs of, to be heard. Um, I don't get many recommendations. I don't get many personal recommendations, magic-wise, because I don't perform a lot. Mm-hmm. But. You know, anything... We can broaden it to outside of magic. Well, here's what I would say to that, is that if you are trying to accomplish something that is an idea or that is abstract, let's say you are trying to move someone and you're doing it in a way that is potentially very powerful and someone comes up to you and goes, hey, you should do this move... If they don't understand, like, the emotion you're trying to invoke in the audience, don't listen to them. It doesn't matter if that slight is amazing. It doesn't matter if it would work well in your routine. Play with that, you know, think about it. But if if they don't understand what you're trying to do, again, you know, don't listen to them. Um, any, any advice that is something like, oh, did you see what this guy's doing? You should do that in your act. Mm-hmm. Any advice that is hack, any advice that, you know, if you were to take would do detriment to magic. And it's hard to know in the moment, but again, cultivate what you think the art of magic is supposed to be. And if you're honest and true to yourself in regards to what that is, not even just in magic, but in your life, then, you know, you can't be faulted. Really good points. And and stuff to think about, meditate on, etc. Mm-hmm. In the last five years, 
What have you become better at saying no to, such as distractions, invitations that aren't appropriate or, or aren't needed at this time? I have been, I have become much better at saying no to no uh, in myself and from other people. Hmm. And so I, I am inclined to stay home, to not do things, to not go out. Uh, and I have gotten better at being out in the world and, and doing things. You know, because I can always justify being at home on my laptop and reading and learning and searching and, you know, experiencing things that way. But sometimes, and for me, I have found that it is important to get out and socialize and, and sort of flesh out these other parts of my life that I you know, didn't think were important a few years ago, but, you know, are actually impacting me in a way that's very positive. Um, and then what was the other thing? Um, well, saying no to distractions oh. or invitations. And then saying no to, uh, saying no to no in myself, that mm -hmm. being that. And then also when I hear no from someone else, that's often just a not yet. Sure. Uh, and, and so not taking a no personally, thinking of it as, uh, either you're not ready or I'm not ready. Mm-hmm. And then doing what it takes to make that happen if you still think it should happen. Mm -hmm. So Good. And then finally, when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused or have lost your focus temporarily, what do you do? That's a great question and what I want you to answer as well. Oh, sure. Um, when I lose focus, I guess a lot of times... If I'm feeling burned out, because mm -hmm. that's really, I think, maybe the crux of the question as far as I'm interpreting. Anyone who's on the path to mastery will at some point experience this sometimes on a regular basis. Yeah. So, When I'm feeling burned out, I step away from it uh, and I try and find the feelings elsewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, so anything that I am appreciative about the thing that I'm burned out about, I try and find that elsewhere. And oftentimes I won't and I'll go, Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And then I'll start Jones and it again, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also helpful for me to remember why I'm doing what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And that is something that helps me keep going and actually helps me prevent burnout. Um, so uh, the meta question that I just bring up at that point is why are you doing what you're doing? As a general milieu as opposed to something specific. Yeah. Why am I doing what I'm doing? I'm doing what I'm doing because I want to make bad magic better. I'm doing this podcast because I want the public perception of magic to be different. I want magicians to think about what they do in a more artistic way. I'm running Art of Magic in a very specific way because I think that it is slowly but surely pushing magic in a way that is helpful and beneficial in the 21st century. I'm getting more involved at the Magic Castle for the same reason, so that I can influence these people coming in in a way that is positive and encouraging. Mm -hmm. Nurturing. And nurturing and also smart and agile and intelligent and not, hey, it works. That's how we've been doing it for 50 years. How about, no. Mm -hmm. Let's try and innovate. Let's try and... so. Anyway, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing, is to try and leave magic better than I found it. Excellent. So, yeah. What do you do when you experience burnout? How do you get away from it? Or how do you get through it? How do I get through it? Um, well, if it's a short-term burnout, mm -hmm. 
the thing that I have found the best, which of course the challenge is that it drives people around me crazy, um, is I pace at an extraordinarily high uh, motion, mm-hmm. which I rationalize as it's excellent exercise for someone <laughs> who gets no exercise. Yeah. Um, but I find that walking around in a like, for example, if I was here and there was, let's say, a little bit more room between you know the, the stuff on the side and the center of the room, I'd be going around and around and around and around. I might do that a hundred times. Yeah. I've been told this is like a, by, from a, a, a Zen Buddhist, that this is a walking meditation. I don't want to analyze it. I know it works. I know that if I pace in a circle around objects and have no impediments to my pace and I can really like a little locomotive, keep going, it somehow refreshes me. I can just hear your mom, Jimmy, sit down, you're making me nervous. <laughs> you're wearing a path on the carpet. Uh. <sighs> um, so that's the short-term answer. Yeah. Um, the long-term answer is do something new. Mm-hmm. Um, win a contest and travel around the world is a great answer. Yeah, holy fuck. Can we talk <laughs> about that for a second? Go ahead, sure, yeah. I mean, what... Where did you go? What did you do? What was how long was the trip? Well, it wasn't very long. Um, it's only four and a half months. Oh no, that's not very long. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay. Um, well, my my first response was I, I after I contacted his assistant. Yeah. I kind of was put in contact with the Boots and All Travel Company, who were the ones who were technically giving me the the, the prize. Yeah. And I said, well, what are the limitations? And the response I got back was the most frightening concept I've ever heard of. There are no limitations. <laughs> okay. Well, now we know what kind of pull Tim Ferriss has. So I, I then decide to spite them because I'm saying they're, they're lying. There are limitations. So I come back with a list that they're never going to say yes to. And they said yes. So what was the list? Uh, the list, okay. I can't remember it. It's so long. Um, bear with me. Bear with me. I had a, I had a teacher in high school whose sons, yeah. uh, there was, I think, Wendy's or some fast food chain had a promotion where on their cups, it was like a peel and stick thing on the cup. You peel it off and you could win airfare or whatever, free flight somewhere if you've got all the pieces or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they would go to Wendy's and dig through the dumpsters and get all the cups that hadn't been peeled. And so they won a bunch of airfare and they flew to Europe and they flew somewhere during the winter where the travel conditions weren't very good. And so their flight would get canceled. Mm-hmm. And so they'd be reimbursed. And then they'd fly somewhere else that had bad travel. And they flew around Europe in bad travel conditions on purpose mm-hmm. for free for like two months. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So so um, I, I started off this by having two lecture tours before this. So I had just done a two-week lecture tour through China and after that a three-week lecture tour through Italy. Mm-hmm. So that had prepped this. And then because there were no limitations, I said, well, can I start my first flight out of Italy? Mm-hmm. And they said, sure. Ta-da! So that, that's where technically it started was I was in um, uh, Rome. Mm-hmm. And then I went from Rome to Paris, uh, to Amsterdam, to Dublin, Edinburgh, London, Munich, Istanbul, Athens, Cairo, Dubai, Tokyo, Bangkok, Sydney, and Auckland. The vast majority of which I've never been to. I've been to England before and been to France before 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Um, but this was uh, an earth shattering trip for me because it broke me out of my comfort zone of staying home. Mm-hmm. You know, I hadn't traveled in a while and I got to see different cultures in a way that was not normal. I did not do a lot of touristy things. And unless something really resonated with me, I didn't go to stuff unless it felt good to me. Mm-hmm. So like, for example, I've went to several places and did not go see churches because I'm on an anti-church crusade. When I originally went to um, England and France out of high school with my two buddies, they were insistent that we go to every freaking church that we could go to. And unfortunately, Europe is full of full churches. Of church. I got so much that it left a bad taste. <laughs> You're done with the church. Don't you need got any, the churches. Don't need any more stained glass in my life. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Um, that said... I had another suggestion from a man named Dick Kornwinder, known as in Holland, because um, Tommy Wonder was one of the most meaningful people in my life in Magic. Juan Tamer is obviously another Slidini. But Tommy, um, I, I, one of my main regrets in Magic is I, a, friend, a mutual friend told me that he had cancer early on, and the friend suggested that I do what I should do. I've done, which was contact him and tell him how much he meant to me because I never really expressed that to him face to face. I'm not that type of guy. And resistance, fear, lack of personal ability to communicate in this regard, mm-hmm. I put it off until it was too late. And I don't know what the end of life is like for a lot of people, but I got to imagine that if I could have at least told him how much he meant to me, it might have made part of that journey easier. Uh, so there's a message for people listening. If you love someone in magic, put aside all the squeamish stuff you have about saying, I love someone in magic. We're talking as an artist, which I think is deeper in some ways than others. Tell them, let them know. Um, Hurts, but at least I did it the second time uh, with Tom Mullica a couple of months before the hernia mishap. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up sending him a message at random on Facebook, not something I do a lot. Mm-hmm. And we started up a discussion. We had a, a lovely discussion, and I found out that one of his early magic teachers was Jim Ryan. The wow. Mar magician in Chicago, who had also been one of my early teachers. So Tom and I bonded over that. We talked about his discussion of opening a new place in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. It was a lovely conversation until a couple months later when I heard the news. Okay, all of that aside, Tommy Wonder meant a lot to me, and I had that hanging over me. And Dick Kornweider had told me, well, the most meaningful thing that Tommy had said towards the end, that, or not meaningful, the most touching thing, was that Tommy had realized that he was going, there's this, um, I'll give pre- preface to this. Um, there's this beautiful tulip garden in Holland. And Tommy apparently was in love with this place. It's a beautiful place. And he realized at one point that he had just went to it and it would be the last time he'd ever see that garden. And Dick said, it's open. And I made the trip there. And it was beautiful. And that was very meaningful. Mm-hmm. So there were things, moments on the trip like that, I could not have planned. I had no foreknowledge of. And I followed the moment Mm -hmm. and went to that place. And it's just, it was an experience. And it's something, in a sense, where I found some closure with Tommy. Um, Maybe if, if there is such a thing as an afterlife and his eyes can see through 
a live person and I got to see that garden for him one more time. Yeah, okay, so we're completely off topic. Um, lots of very strange things on the trip. Um, did I met very interesting people, met unusual people, met people I'll never remember because they made no impact on me. Um, interesting experience going to Airbnbs because that's uh, I, I had to pay for my own hotel and food, obviously. I just got the, the, the uh, airfares. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting to see how Airbnbs operate in the culture. Um, how some places you could do this on every corner and zero dust and others like, oh, I will, well, I'll say it in Egypt where pretty much everything was dust, <laughs> <laughs> probably due to the nature of the environment. But interesting experiences seeing how one cultures treat guests in a home and versus others. Mm. Um, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Hope I can do it again. Um, everyone always asks me, how do you win? A contest like that, and the only answer I can give is enter. Mm-hmm. If you don't enter, you're guaranteed you won't win. Yeah. Um, if you don't believe you're win, you might somehow fulfill that prophecy. So give yourself the chance. Say I might win. Who knows? Pull, coming back to the, the the point of what you do when you're distracted and, and pull yourself back in, self awareness. Step out a bit and say, Am I on focus with the most important thing that I want to get done at the moment? Mm-hmm. Um, with David Allen's productivity technique, there's a technique that I'm enamored of called inbox zero, where you get your inbox your email inbox to zero. There are people that have 20,000 emails in their inbox. Terrifying concept to me now. Every day I go into my email box and I, if it's something I have no interest in, immediately delete. Mm-hmm. If it's something that I want to keep but has no action related to it, I archive it. Otherwise, it goes in one of three folders. One is action, where it's something I have to actually do an action with, respond to someone, take care of a bill, whatever. It's something that's action-oriented. Incubate, which is something I want to think about maybe in a week or two, but I don't want to do a thing this week. So that goes into the incubate folder. And then the third folder is waiting. So let's say, for example, I write a letter to someone and I'm waiting for a response back. I put it into the waiting folder so that way I can scan those three folders on a regular basis and pay attention to the important stuff. Often, because I get 300 emails a day, a lot, of, a lot of mailing lists, um, I will get distracted with the whacking the weeds. Mm-hmm. You know? And then every now and then I have to pull back and say, go back to the important folders and get some progress done on those before you whack the weeds. Mm-hmm. Take care of the house before you take care of the lawn. Um, so that's being aware of what you're doing, pulling yourself back in. In terms of creativity, distraction, because creativity sometimes thrives on distraction. Mm-hmm. Um Change the moment or change the atmosphere, change the lighting, change your clothes, change your cologne, change the coffee beans, you know, change something that you're used to and that will shock you a bit. Um, What I would do for your goal with the castle, for example, have you got the act figured out yet? No. Okay. Do you have any part of the act? Is like yes. one trick you know is going to be in the, that performance? There are, yeah, there are several tricks that I know are going to be in the act. Okay. What I like to do mm-hmm. is I like outlining. Mm-hmm. Um, if you... Oh. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> Just kidding. If you have a spreadsheet, you can certainly put it in that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, even a text file using the tab to indent mm-hmm. works. 
but a, a useful thing, especially if one is enamored of writing utensils and paper, buy three point three by five index cards. Mm-hmm. Literally, some of the cheapest tools you can buy in in the world. So buy a sharpie. You already have a sharpie to sign cards with, so use a sharpie. And index cards are like five bucks for a thousand if you buy the recycled versions. And then index card write down one of the routines or one of the ideas and then another one same thing and so on and then you can reorder them you can restructure you can lay them out on the table and look at them and on the same side you can write notes or if you'd like to keep the title clean flip it over and write your notes on the back and then you can restructure your act that way without having to you know scratch out on paper or if you're in a, if you're in a computer it's easy you just move the text lines but if you like tangible stuff like this start writing it down do you know what you're going to wear? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've got that f- figured out. Um, do you that know- was the first thing. <laughs> good, good. Um, the other thing that I recommend is a, as a good tool for mm-hmm. reaching the completion of goals or at least moving towards the completion of goals, visualize yourself in the moment mm-hmm. and what you want to see on the faces of your audience and see that on faces, generic faces in the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, that's helped me a lot. That's great. And if you, I don't know if it's something that works on the subconscious level and then filters out upwards mm-hmm. but if you can you know and if you need to visualize if you need to put something on your eyes like a sleep mask they sell those for a few bucks put that on again i like the idea of headphones to blocks out that uh, i sit back and think all right what do i want to look like when i come out when the person introduces me what will happen if he flubs a line or doesn't say it right have mm-hmm. i even written the introduction to the guy who introduces me mm-hmm. things to think of you know and if you visualize it and take it step by step you will start to say what are the important things i need to get done before I'm booked at the castle. Um, and then the other thing, which gets a little bit into frou-frou spirituality stuff, write affirmations. Um, and I would like to stay away from generic ones, but something to the effect of, I am delighted by every smile I see on every face in my performance mm-hmm. at the castle. And write that out. Mm-hmm. Um, I love every laugh that comes out of you know someone's you know uh, mouth. Um, I greet every person as they come in or I greet every person as they go and shake their hand, you know, and just write that stuff down and then visualize it. Mm -hmm. And by the time this rolls around, you're going to knock it so cold, stone cold dead that this will be like a fairy tale come true. Mm -hmm. Um, so focus on the goals, visualize whenever you get stuck, change things. Like I said, I get up and do the pacing, uh, but or if you're listening to music, change the music. Something as simple as simply changing your coffee, or for a week, try tea, or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. so, something that will change your life in a way, and then see if that kicks your creativity out. And then sit down and close your eyes, do nothing else, cut out all distractions. However, you do that, mm-hmm. and visualize and see you know what you want to come up in. Um, for my oil and water routine, where I came up with a. In, especially at the time I did it, um, a completely new ending to oil and water, which how many endings to oil and water is there? Um, that was purely me sitting down doing all of the above. Mm-hmm. And it just, it bubbled out of me. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to force it out. It was just like, bing, bing, bing. And three hours later, and the method actually makes the ending happen. Genius. How do I get this made? And then the steps were, oh, I need to figure out how to print on playing card stock. Because this is, of course, before the luxury we have now where we can go to a U.S. playing card company and just ask them to print things. Um, So I found out, um, well, we can silk screen on cards. 
how do I silk screen? Because that's how you print on t-shirts. Mm-hmm. Well, I found, um, oh, Tony, my friend, happened to know how to silk screen. So he t- put me in contact with a company that would make the screens. I designed the PIPS order, on, had it printed out on clear acetate, took that to the screen printer, got the screens made, came back, and then laid the cards out and did a squeegee with red ink for the red PIPS, black ink for the black PIPS. It would have never started if I had just not sat down visualized. And, oh, some people would want to call it meditation. I'll just say, sit down and think yep. with zero distractions. And if you find yourself distracted, realize it and then come back to the focus. Mm-hmm. And realize it may not happen in one night or six nights or a thousand. But if you keep going, I bet you it happen sooner than you expect. I agree. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jim. This has been amazing. Uh, we finish with the the most astonishing piece of magic you ever saw. When, when was the time that you were fooled just the hardest? Flabbergasted, totally befuddled, bamboozled. Wow. Ever, ever. Ever. Or just a time that it was really good. <laughs> well, a time when it was really good didn't fool me at all. was almost any time. What is your definition of fool? What was my definition of fooling? Because here, because here's the answer. My answer to that question: the time that I have felt the most totally astonished, I knew the method. Not not like I think I know how he's doing it. I literally do the method. More astonished than probably okay. anything else. I, I have an answer. Okay, um, but um, I, the 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 meta answer was Jay Marshall doing Lefty. Mm-hmm. Um, I know exactly. Technically, what he's doing from a ventriloquism perspective, mm-hmm. but the magic of him doing that performance, impossible. And I, having worked for Jay for 15 years, I got to see it a few times. Yeah. And every time was special. Okay. The moment, and with all due respect to all the, the amazing magic that I've seen that has touched me deeply, like Teller doing Shadows, like Juan Temer's on numerous occasions with Jim Ryan with the cups and balls, with Slidini with the coin. Mm. Actually, okay, I'll say two. Slidini with the coin. I got three lessons with Slidini. One on cards, one on coins, and one on uh, the handkerchiefs, the knots. There were two moments with Slidini that will stick with me permanently, vividly, for the rest of my life. One is I was doing a buckle, and I was using my middle finger to do a buckle, where most magicians were using forefinger to do the buckle. Mm-hmm. With the forefinger, you're flashing the front of the buckle. It's very clear if you're looking at the right angle what's happening. With the middle finger, it's color. And apparently at the time, people weren't doing this. Mm-hmm. So Eugene saw this as he was teaching me and said, you do that very well. You're clever. Slidini telling you you're clever? Felt right in all the good ways. But there was this moment in this coin routine when he has the the silver dollar up here and he does this. That's exactly what it was. I was there. I was attentive. I was vibrant in the moment, present, you name it. And that coin was just not there. Silver dollar here and it's gone right in front of my eyes. It cannot be explained. Now, technically, I understand exactly how it works. I know what I did not see. But I did not feel it. I did yes. not sense it. Yep. I did not. It, the coin melted away in reality. That was one of the moments. Yep. The other moment, I had studied Tommy Wonder's Cups and Balls. 
before it had become known before the books. Yeah. And I got him to come into one of the privileges of working at Magic Incorporated was I got Tommy Wonder to lecture at Magic Incorporated as well as a couple of other magic clubs in Chicago. And I paid him to record his lecture, videotape his lecture, because I wanted to learn how to do his cups and balls, etc. Do you still have this? Technically, it's on YouTube. Oh, okay. Um, technically. Um, because w- when I made it, I said to Tommy, I would not make any copies. And he says, well, you can make one copy for me. Okay, Tommy. <laughs> so I made a copy on VHS tape way back when, transferred it to PAL, because mm. we had to deal with stuff like that back then, and mailed it to him after you know, it was done. So he got that, that tape. And apparently, as he passed, his brother, Frank, found the tape doesn't have my name on it. It's just tape I made and sent to Tommy and encoded it, digitized it, and put it up on YouTube. So the videotape of me filming Tommy Wonders on YouTube, not with my permission, and given the sensitivity of, you know, what his brother is going through, missing his, you know, Josh Bellman, uh, I can't say anything about that. Uh, Layman, unfortunately, could search and see some phenomenal magic mm. that's groundbreaking for free on YouTube. The one advantage we've got with exposure on YouTube is there's so freaking much stuff on YouTube that most people are never going to find it unless they're really looking for it. Yeah. So, okay. So, so yeah, the video is available. Great. <laughs> um, but okay. So I know the cup and ball routine mm-hmm. and I'm filming it, and of course, I'm being Mr. Proactive with video. I want to zoom in and get really close up for certain things, and I want to pull out for wider on certain things. And he starts doing the cups and balls, and I'm all jazzed because I love this routine. This is this is art. Yeah, this is magic. And he's doing the first part of the routine, and he's coming up to the moment when he's going to prepare the pom pom production, which on video is. You clearly it's going to be glaringly obvious. So I realized that I've zoomed in too close mm-hmm. and I don't have the pom-pom in frame, mm-hmm. which from a videography perspective, from a learning perspective is death. So I pull the frame back and I miss it. I did not zoom out fast enough to capture the moment that we know is so important. Mm-hmm. Hated myself. Got to keep filming. So I finished the rest of, you know, thank you, Tommy. Don't even say anything because it's like Mr. Stupid Director didn't know when to pull, zoom out. I go home, watch the the tape, and it's on frame. I actually did capture 100%. It's not cut halfway off. I had pulled, zoomed out fast enough that I have the secret move completely visible on my film. But you missed it. But looking through the forced frame, I missed it entirely, which shows you that Tommy Wonder understood direction, a.k.a. Mr. Egg, but direction, better than virtually ever. Yeah. And he fooled me, who knew his routine, and I was utterly focused on it. Yeah. That is a flabbergasting moment. Um, That is one of the few, not, not your video of it, but the LNL video of him doing the cups and balls is one of the few... Pieces of magic that I will show people on YouTube because it is undeniable. You feel as close to magic in real life watching that video as possible. It is... It's magic. Yeah. Well, let me say uh, sort of as a roundabout way of closing. 
Tommy really achieved great moments in that routine as well as his other constructions because he approached problems with the idea of nothing's off limits. Mm -hmm. If you would have talked to most magicians about cups and balls, they would, of course, say, well, yeah, you have three cups and you have these final loads at the end that must be done. Tommy canceled out all of those problems looking at real-world issues like how do you carry big loads mm -hmm. if you're wearing a tailored suit? Mm -hmm. They would show. Mm -hmm. And Tommy's method, if you haven't seen this, look up the L buy the LNL DVD. It's still available, um, Mr. List Mr. and Mrs. Listeners. Um, he solved all these problems. It's a routine that resets itself, mm -hmm. has no angles, yep. is magical, only uses two cups, which sort of matches the two hands that you have, and doesn't lose anything from any other routine and feels unique. And at the end, if you do it well... Have you ever seen anybody do it well? Other than Tommy? I've never seen anyone do it. I Well, I did it. I took I took paid Tommy for a lesson to, to learn how to do it, so I've done it. Mm -hmm. um, I, don't, I won't say that I do it anywhere near as well as he did. Um, I have seen one other person do it on TV. I've not seen it live, so I won't give it a fair assessment. Because on TV, it's not the same, or I should say on video, it's not the same thing as seeing it live. It didn't work as well with the other person doing it. Um, and he, I think he did it well mm -hmm. from a different level of perspective. <laughs> okay. I, I, I don't want to say... Sure. Because sure, the person, sure. It, right on. The person who's done it has put a lot of effort and passion into it, So, mm -hmm. and that I appreciate. Mm -hmm. But I look at that and say, that's it's not, not Tommy. Jinx. <laughs> okay. Um, but the other thing I was going to say, Tommy is one of our true treasures in magic. And I highly, highly recommend, I know I've said it before, but look up the Books of Wonder. If you love technical magic, you will find treasure after treasure after treasure. If you love routine genius, you know, someone who can figure out how to structure routine well, again, delightful. And then the theory chapters, which are interspersed throughout the tricks, Oh, embrace them. So, so amazing. Yeah. Um, the other books that I highly recommend is Juan's books, uh, mainly focused on theory, although mm -hmm. there are tricks in them. The Five Points in Magic was one of the books that really changed my life at the time. Yeah. And The Magic Way structured my way of formulating routines mm -hmm. that I would not have done if I had not read that book. Mm -hmm. um, I've yet to read The Magic Rainbow. But I'm sure that will have a, f a further impact when I uh, get a copy. That's coming out soon, right? Uh, it's, in English. It's published in Spanish, and hopefully the English will follow when it's done. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, these are books that embrace them. Uh, these are the types of books that you bookmark and write notes in the margin and live by. You yeah. know? Um, so if you're listening, if you actually, if you take nothing else away, buy and read and love the Books of Wonder, The Five Points of Magic, The Magic Way, eventually The Magic Rainbow. Those are books that will have tremendous impact on you. Not to say that books like Card College from Roberto Giovio don't have a place in your life, but they're, it's a different thing. So that's if you walk away from this podcast with one idea, get those books and love them. Well, thank you so much, Jen. This is amazing. Thank you, Elliot. I appreciate it. <laughs> An honor. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Magical Thinking. If you enjoyed the show, head over to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Magical Thinking, and become a patron to support the show and get access to exclusive content. Feel free to interact with me on Patreon, 
through the Facebook group, which you can find by searching Magical Thinking, or by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com. Follow us on all the social media channels and tune in every Thursday for a new episode. I'll see you next Thursday. Cheers. Cheers.